Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives, and this is Knife Perspective, episode number 017, a 20-minute lifetime with Jungle Joe Flowers of Bushcraft Global. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, been a pretty crazy uh, couple of weeks, so glad to, uh, hopefully we're on a little bit of the downward swing of things, but getting ready to ramp up again for uh, Thanksgiving and all the other holidays, Christmas and stuff. So we'll be busy. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, just got back from Blade Show West, which was a lot of fun. Um, I wasn't quite sure what to think of Portland when I headed out there, but I had a good time. Uh, it was a really good show. Uh, obviously, they're building up a little bit. Still much smaller than East, but it was a, a great show. And being a smaller room, it, it made it a little easier to stand out. I had a good time, and I was honored to be one of the judges for the kitchen knife cutting competition. Very cool. And that was a blast. Yeah, very cool. So I'm, I'm in a pretty good place. I find out tomorrow um, what the deal is with my biceps tendon. Nice. Hopefully that all goes well, and well, whatever whatever needs to be done gets done. Yeah, I mean, I've... I, We'll find out tomorrow. I'm just going to leave it with that glass all full kind of thing. I am pretty excited that they're kind of make it, trying to make Blade Show West be a little more kitchen knife focused. I might try to go out there next year. We'll see. I was very pleased for just that point. And from what I understand, the kitchen knife competition is going to be only Blade Show West. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Blade Show East will still be the knife of the year. You know, who does the 5,000 layer Damascus. And of course it'll be the blade sports world championship. And then I think West is going to continue to focus on kitchen knives, okay. which makes me a happy camper. Yeah. Side note, really phenomenal food out in Portland, especially oh, I was blown away by the street food Like they'll take a parking lot and run power and water to the parking lot. And then a bunch of food trucks will take over. So there's just these random little food courts of four or five food trucks with different street food. It Very was cool. It was awesome. Yeah, I saw on your Instagram feed there were some pictures of a bunch of different places you ate. That was you. I saw you went to Voodoo Donuts. I think it was. Of course, uh, you, you can't go to Portland and not go to Voodoo. Uh, side note: Eleven o'clock is this is kind of the sweet spot. You're there. The tourists have left, and the guys with the munchies haven't shown up yet. So it, it, the line is really short. There's still plenty of donuts to choose from. 11 o'clock seems to be the sweet spot. Is that 11 p.m. or 11 a.m.? 11 p.m. Really? Wow. Yep. I would have thought it mainly would have been the morning stuff. Um, I don't think they open until uh, – they might be open at 11 a.m., but they, they don't open until later in the day. Hmm. Interesting. Usually donuts are 
or at least around us, is always always like a morning thing. It turns out they're not just for cops anymore. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, if, I wonder, uh, if I wonder why I got pulled over next week, I'll know. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you got a little bit of time before this uh, podcast airs. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> well, uh, so we got our... Well, we got our sponsors first. Oh, yeah. yeah. Make sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives for all your knife needs. And uh, you can find us at uh, cagedailyknives.com and dogwoodcustomknives.com. And uh, we can find us at our dealers, Old Town Cutlery. You can find Dogwood and Cage Daily Knives. And Knife Center and the Knife House is where you can find Dogwood Custom Knives and the Knife House was the the new dealer that Dan talked about in the episode last week, and looks like they're working on their website, so hopefully they'll start to have uh, some of that stuff populated here soon. They also have a really cool strop system. It's, hmm. a, it's a really nice slab of micarta for the base, and they use a magnet on the base, and then they mount their leather on a thin piece of metal. So hmm. it's really – it's. It holds really well, but it's just a matter of popping off the piece of leather and putting on another one uh, whenever you want to change either okay. medium or if the leather wears out. It's a really cool little uh, strop system. Huh. And you probably do that with metal and some of the, the stones and stuff, too. Yeah. That's really cool. And I've, I think I've been using theirs for about three weeks now, uh, which is why I'm now comfortable to, to mention it because it works extremely well. Well, I think you're going to need to... Uh post some pics on the uh, Knife Perspective Instagram. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. I remembered just today I totally took some pictures. I will email the uh, text, send those to you in the morning because my <laughs> phone battery dead. I can't do it right now, but I'll have those to you in the morning. Well, we're recording a podcast, so don't do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, for uh, shout outs, uh, I have a shout out. My shout out was originally published. Let's see here. I think it was 1992. Yeah, copyright 1992. I've been on a knife making book kick uh, here recently, and I've been trying to find uh, this book for a reasonable price, and finally found it on eBay. It it came from a ABS master smith, actually, uh, Jim Savino. Savino. Not exactly sure how to say his last name. But uh, he included a whole bunch of like really old Blade magazine articles that has a whole bunch of loveless knives and stuff in it. But it's the book Living on the Edge, Logos of the Loveless Legend. I posted some photos of the, the book and then kind of in the beginning. But pretty much all the, the knives are on grid paper that are quarter inch squares. Mm-hmm. So you can get an idea of how big and the proportions of all the knives and stuff. One of the things that I thought was super interesting was the the Delaware knives that he started making. I haven't read any of the book yet, but it says Delaware made that he like kind of hand engraved on it, but he spelled it M A I D uh, instead of M A D E. So um, hopefully it says why he wrote it like that. He did it on a ton of knives, so it's definitely not an accident. Um, if if he's as dyslexic as I am, it's because how else do you spell made? Well. I would have thought somebody would have told him, but it's on a lot of knives. So you know, when when pushy little co-hosts keep correcting you, you you just you tune that out. When <laughs> when pushy little apprentices in the shop correct your spelling, sometimes you just tune that out. 
Alrighty. Or he made <laughs> It would be it's quiet. Not, that yeah. Hey, I'm sorry. I I thought I heard something, <laughs> but they haven't been introduced yet, so I definitely didn't hear anything. Uh, so, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm pretty excited about reading the book. Uh, looking to buy a couple other books. The problem is when they're when they're all over a hundred dollars each, you got to kind of space them out a little bit. So I assume you have, but have you read um, Making a Knife with Bob Loveless yet? Uh, yes. Okay. Just making sure, because that's a great first book, just because it gives you was, – he was Merchant Marine when he was making his first knives. Is that correct? Um, I know he was shipboard. I, I can't remember if he was Merchant Marine. I think it was, but uh, my memory isn't quite the, the greatest on some of that stuff. Um, I do know that uh, a podcast uh, does, that did an awesome episode on his entire life, Mark of the Maker, they went through him from – little all the way through the end and they did a great podcast on on his whole life i have to find that episode yeah they've done a, a couple really good ones they did one on randall they did one on skagel tom Crine. if you ever listen to mark and the maker his knife making book library will put pretty much anybody's the shame he's got books on everything that he's collected Outstanding. Made me made, made me spend a lot more money. That that was where I first heard about this logos of the living or of the loveless legend book, and it became no the next uh, number one on my list. So when this one popped up for a for a decent price on eBay, I just started bidding and ended up bidding more than I wanted to. But now I got the book. <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing about auctions. Yeah. So for so. my shout out, I want to talk about Soulbound Leather. We will have them on in the next couple of episodes, but she made a bad circuit board sheath. There's a link to the website, but they haven't – the pictures of the, the sheath are up on Instagram, but I don't know if it's up on the website yet. But it is phenomenal. The attention to detail that they put into it is, is – it's just impressive. Yeah, she did a bunch of circuit board carving and stuff on it that looks really cool. Yeah. I had another maker that was hand-tooling. He was not able to get the level of detail that she got on this. I mean, he did some really cool stuff for me, but I mean, the detail that she she did. I know how she did it, but I'm not giving up the secret because I don't know if she wants anybody to know. Okay. But the level of detail is phenomenal. Very cool. So you want to introduce our uh, interviewee? Uh, it looks like in the show notes, for the first time ever, there's going to be a dual introduction. Yeah. So introductee. Make sure you wait until Kyle is finished. <laughs> um, I met Joe. Actually, the first time I talked to Joe was when he was on an E2E co- uh, podcast talking about uh, the first Bushcraft Global trip. And I remember the more he talked about it, the more excited I got. And by the end of the, the episode, I'm like, okay, where do, where do I send the check? And we closed out the episode. And I was like, hey, seriously, you never told me where to send the check. It's like, oh, that, that wasn't a bit for the podcast? I'm like, no, running around in the jungle with indigenous Indians? I'm down. And then preparing for that trip, we started talking a little bit about designing knives, a little back and forth. There was some, some two o'clock in the morning, hold a sketch up to the, the camera for Skype, back and forth, working on the Piranha, which was a knife we designed together. And then I got to actually hang out with him at Blade Show, and turns out I really liked the guy. And we spent a week at the Jungle Joe Warrior Training Center and Children's Day Camp. And now I guess we're four or five trips down to the Amazon together. And I am 
I am really thankful to be able to call Joe Flowers a friend. Yeah, I met Joe for the first time in 2012 at the the Blade Show. And I don't know if Joe remembers it, but uh, I was hanging out with a whole bunch of people at the Fiddleback Forge out in front. It was when uh, Dylan still smoked, so everybody was out there. Joe, while we were talking to the group, Joe said, I'm getting hungry. And he pulled out a large knife. It wasn't a machete, but it was it was something that was pretty big. And then started digging for worms in the flower beds there at the, the, the front of the Renaissance Waverly. And was trying to get everybody to help to eat some of the worms that he said, these particular worms are more delicious than most. <laughs> and uh, even got Dylan Fletcher's mom to try try one. That was pretty funny. I don't know if you remember that, Joe, but that was a, a pretty funny pretty funny time in my uh, start of my knife-making journey. Welcome to the culture. Now <laughs> <laughs> you may yeah. speak, Joe. Okay. I, yeah, I definitely remember that because I have not lived that down that time. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the next year, we at least brought, like, worms that – or, well, beetle larvae that we, you know – gave a whole bunch of oatmeal to right before like a week before so they were tasty but yeah dude dylan's mom was a legend a legend she, she's <laughs> hardcore yeah that was pretty funny and dylan, have you guys had dylan on the podcast yet we have yeah little uh, okay secret, his mom is a ranked if not nationally ranked uh single action shooting single action shooting society uh shooter like the cowboy? Yeah, uh, the cowboy action stuff. She is a phenomenal cow. cowboy action shooter. Well, I mean, the dude was on, uh, uh, what was that? That Simple Shot? No, what or was the name shot. of the show? Yeah, Top, so top it, Shot. It makes so much sense, you know. Yeah, Dylan was on episode nine. Episode actually, nine. Actually, let me, Joe, where did you mature? No, that's not the right word. Okay, Joe, where did you move from adolescence, from juvenile to adolescence? Well, I was born once, and it was awesome. Now, well, you know, like, I don't know. I didn't have, like, some awesome epic story of, like, I was born with a pack of wolves, and my mother was a seagull, and my father was a boat. Um, no, I, I, I was born in Ohio, um, but I only lived there for, like, two years before we moved down to North Carolina. And then um, my dad kept working in banking. Um and so we kept getting promoted. So we moved down to Florida. Um, and that's when I really got into reptiles as a little, little, little kid. Um, you know, those little blue power wheels, like the Bigfoots from back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, with the two wheels or the, uh, with like the, the, the four wheels. wheel or the, okay. The, yeah. Yeah. So oh, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There, there was like a playground and two ponds back behind the house in Fort Lauderdale. Um, and I, I ran over a little alligator and was felt real sad. So I picked it up and kind of let it go. Or I think I picked it up. I don't know. I was like five. And um, my, my dad said I was always catching, you know, lizards and stuff. And mom said she'd find, you know, dead lizards and in the pockets and all that in Florida. So then we moved back to Charlotte, then moved out to back up to Ohio, then California, and then, you know, back to, to North Carolina. So North Carolina more or less has been home, but uh, we moved around a lot. Well, anyway. Oh, yeah, so, you've really been been all over the place. Yeah, as a kid, you know, like, uh, that's kind of like a big deal when, when, when it's with, like, a kid. Like, when you move in high school, that affects a kid a bunch. Or when you when you move in, like, middle school, you've already been, like, you know, starting to, 
you know, be interested in girls and start, you know, like doing your relationship. And all of a sudden parents are like, Hey, we need to leave. And I'm like, Oh man, now I'm going to be a dork again. And um, <laughs> so, you know, that, that, that does affect you. And because of that, you know, I, I went outside a lot in California, um, moving from the South to California um, was a big cultural uh, change for me. And, and so like I was out at like the local mountain state park, you know, like every single weekend. And the Boy Scouts are cool, just like anywhere else, any coach in football, any teacher in, in, in college, it depends on the, the instructor. So like with the Boy Scouts, all we did with, with that group in California was um, like service projects and stuff. And so dad was like, oh, I'm going to pull you out of that. Here's a big knife and uh, <laughs> a mountain bike and, and go play out in the mountains. See a Sunday. No more of that kumbaya stuff for you. No, well, he, he was, you know, old school. He not, not only was he like a Marine in the Vietnam um, era and stuff and, and, and did a whole bunch of stuff he never talks about. He was telling me stories of like them in Arkansas, you know, like his Boy Scout troop of like six kids walking in a line with bows and like uh, a Razorback would, would rush them and each one of them would hit it with an arrow and then jump off the trail and it'd keep going and each one of them would like take turns shish kebabbing it until they finally had it dead. And I was like, what? That's pretty crazy. That's the scouting we need today. Yeah. I've (laughs) never heard anything like that in my life. I think they were just like wannabe ninjas that happen to have scout badges because they made like canoes out of canvas and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I was like, dad, I'm not really seeing any reference to this in the scouting manuals. (laughs) Well, so you got to read between the pages. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a lot about who's all leading it i think yeah 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 well i mean that's it honestly it has context anywhere you know it could be uh you know your teacher who taught you knife making for instance you know they could be an either a good one or they could be some you know old smoky curmudgeon who just is like this is the way i do it and everybody else is this dumb idiot you know <laughs> that's that's every knife maker joe Oh, okay. Well, it's the same deal with beekeepers. So either or. That's funny. So uh, what was your first knife, Joe? Oh, man. I had to think about that for a second. You know, the buck, um, I think it's the 110. Yep. Um, Everybody knows the buck 110. I believe it was the 110. I'm I'm, I'm Googling it right. Yeah, it's 110. Um, I had the Pakistani version of it. Mm Yeah. Or the Chinese version that my dad gave me when I was very, very, very young, knowing full well what was going to happen to it, my dad was not going to give me a buck one ten right off the bat because I promptly yeah. had it for about two months and then lost it and 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 died on the inside. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, we all have those stories about losing your first knife, but I was like, my dad entrusted me with this. This is my you know my first knife, my lock back, blah blah blah, and I lost it. I have failed my first attempt at being a man. Yeah, that's what it felt like, man. I need yep. to go back to using my teeth and gnawing on wood. Yeah. <laughs> and and then he got me like a miniature um, 110, but not, once again, not not um, straight up buck. And um, I lost that. And then he got me a, he probably did this just to smite me, a Victorinox princess. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you, you never lost so, that one because you didn't take it out in public. 
<laughs> right. Well, no, it's it was, possibly. Um, but, you know, it's it's the keychain knife. Everybody probably has one on their keychain or has had one at some point. Um, and he attached a lanyard on it and he said, you know, don't lose this, Joe. Uh, and I still have it today. Dummy cord is the key. Yeah. And honestly, I, I have lost a lot of knives and you know why? No dummy cord. Because you do survival rolls in the middle of a field at night. Well, that too, but also no dummy cord. Yep. You know, so um, we could talk about losing knives and, you know, some of our observations with that. But um, from now on, every knife I make you will have uh, will have an attachment for dummy cord. Guys, context, I lost a piranha um, and I still have been looking at it at that campsite. Um, year after year, I walked around with a metal detector, but Did I you was really? like a, yeah, yeah. I rented it from oh, a, uh, yeah, it sucked. I found like, like five little pieces of tetanus causing shrapnel, but uh, no knife. Man. Thank you. I, wow. I told you I went out there with a dang, dang black light, uh, attached to like a, a car battery inverter. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the early attempts at glow in the dark. I'm afraid it's not that efficient. Hmm. Eh. It also doesn't help that I was. So do you guys know what a like a a full on one handed uh, roll is or shoulder roll? Yep. So that's what I was doing in this field with uh, Dan's knife at night. At night. Came out of the sheath, lost a three hundred dollar knife. You you may have lost more knives than. uh... Than I have. You know, some kind-hearted knife maker replaced that, though, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, and it's much cooler, too. Because that first one, what, what steel was that? Um, I don't – you know, it may have been 01 or something because it was – the second a, one's – I think this one's AEBL, right? The second one uh, that you got me? Um, I, I think the second one's CPM 154. Okay, one of those super steels, and it's yeah. pretty cool. Because the first one was a was the prototype. Ah, okay. Um, so it was probably from an easier steel to work with. And then the second yeah. one was, okay, Joe lost the first one, so he'll keep this one. So then I'll use good steel for it. Or okay. Better steel. I'll use better steel. All right. So <laughs> listeners, now you have a formula on how to get Darren to make you a knife out of really good steel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> disclaimer, oh, yeah. disclaimer, disclaimer. Yeah. We first, all first. have pockets. We are yeah. not... Uh, warranted for losing our knife. Yes. Step one, be a world-renowned knife designer. Step two, design (laughs) a knife with Dan. Then you can go to step three with try to lose one and Dan will replace it for you. (laughs) Become a really good friend with Dan. Yeah, that's basically it. Just give Dan a whole bunch of really good food, some meat spices and and a bit of of booze and good to go. Give Dan really good rum around a fire in the Amazon River Basin. Nice. <laughs> All right. That also so, works too. So on the – I'm sure you've listened to at least half a podcast before. Yeah. So on the Kyle-Dan scale of how you met your wife. Oh, more towards the Dan. Okay. That's <laughs> specific information, but I feel like we need to flesh it out with some details. I, I, I feel like I need a justification of that ranking. Okay. Uh, I'll try and figure out how to PG rate this because some of my uh, um, uh, younger students might listen. So um, I had a friend in zoology who uh, actually just visited a couple weekends ago. Um, and uh, uh, she was a good friend. She did not uh, uh, go out that much 
you know, in college because she was very astute, uh, pretty cool person. But um, she turned 21. And uh, of course, me and my buddies were like, heck yeah, let's, let's do what 21 year, 21 year olds do and get her scream vomit drunk. Um, <laughs> and, scream and, vomit. <laughs> yeah. So if you can imagine how that sounds. And, and so we did that, you know, uh, uh, you know, ma- made sure she was well taken care of and she got home with her roommates and all that stuff too. But that same girl had a, had a party later on and one of her mutual friends, um, actually one of her good friends, Ashley, my wife came from UNC and like she saw me there at this party and I was um, imbibing in like a, a half gallon of, of um, very, very low tier uh, potato mashed um, alcoholic beverages. Uh, <laughs> vodka. Um, Water of and, life. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and um, she's like, that dude is the guy who got, you know, our, our friends so intoxicated that she threw up. And so I didn't really. Put, he must like, be punished for the rest of his life. <laughs> I, di- I didn't really put out the positive vibes on 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 that note. But um, uh, Ashley brought her roommate, who didn't look like she was having a good time. So I was like, oh, "It's her roommate. All right, I'm going to go talk to the roommate for a while, and you know, at least you know, uh, see if I can find out about Ashley from there. Because when she came in, it looked like Jennifer Anderson walked through the door." lights and, and flickers and all that fun stuff and oh, the so, whole, okay i paid a roommate to get to know her trick we're, we're yeah, yeah honestly you know they'll probably never listen to this but if they do i'm in trouble but uh, uh long story short like barbara wanted to go out the the girl who, who i hung out with on her 21st birthday wanted to go out clubbing i really liked to dance and so i was the only boy invited with like five six girls and, and that night he became a man yeah, and that night I I, I I went through puberty. No, um, but that night I, I really got to know Ashley, and it was super fun. And then we decided to go salsa dancing as our first date. Well, we hit it off. Poor girl has been doing with me ever since. So scream vomit, potato vodka, date, uh, talk to the roommate to get to know her, salsa dancing. Yeah, but, you know, this was a time of AOL instant messenger. So we were able to talk, you know, on a text basis in between. So I, I don't know how it is now or then, but like you're able to get to know them a little bit easier than just, you know, like walking up and talking to them at, at these, um, you know, different social events and gatherings. And, you know, that, that was a big deal for for the the 30-year-olds and, and, you know, some 20-year-olds 20, 20 and, and even the 40-year-olds and, and, and whatnot during that time because um, – as far as relationships go, you know, you just got online and saw where everybody was. You know, it's 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 kind of interesting to see that change in in relationships. Now it's on Tinder and you know whatever it is, left swipe, right swipe, left swipe. You know, get to know somebody. Okay, no, we're done. Okay, no, not interesting. You know, so um, thanks, internet. <laughs> you know, as, as someone who's brutally dyslexic, I had to fall back on the old school talking to people. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've seen your, your spelling. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I usually know what I mean. Yeah. If you ever want to, if you ever want to taste, make sure you uh, DM or email Dan. He'll, he'll love it. Call him guys. <laughs> you know, Honestly, Dan, you need to like go back to printed catalogs. Um, <laughs> you, you would, you, you would kill it there. I think, you know, I, if if there's somebody that I'm going to have to communicate with, they always get the disclaimer of I know that uh, I can't spell, 
if you need some clarification on anything I've written, it's not going to hurt my feelings. If that's a problem for you, you know, I'm not the knife maker that you need. Well, you know, honestly, you know, that that can be one thing, but we're, I guess I'm on this rant about, you know, electronic communication. Um, you know, print has, has been going away, um, such as Tactical Knives Magazine and, you know, some of the old magazines back in the day. Backwoods Magazine is one of the biggest, like, when, when, when you put an article in there, all the people who don't feel like dealing with phones, yeah. all the people who don't want to do emails, all of a sudden you, you talk to all of them. Um, for me, it really comes down to if you want a response now, you got to deal with my spelling. If you want a response in a week, my wife will proofread the email and then I can get it out to you. Honestly, you guys should think about advertising in Backwoodsman Magazine. You might want to edit this out so, like, you don't tell the other knife makers what's going on. But, like, I think there is a huge reason. I love Backwoods. And if nothing else, I love it for the old school, you know, tips and techniques that are wedged in between articles. Yeah. And you know what? Young people still read that. Old people who have a flip phone still read that. Um there's only a handful of publications I still have subscriptions to, and that's one of them. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have it for my wife's office, too. I'll have to check that one out. I've, I don't think I've ever read anything from it. So it's an old school magazine, Kyle, um, where you can submit whatever you want. They don't pay, hint. Um, yeah. But uh, um, anybody can, can submit anything they want, and it's a private magazine. It doesn't have a publisher. So um, the – editor you know is able to keep it going and whatever they've done is they've done a really really good job there are classic articles in there from really good well-written um makers well-written knife writers like dan Checkman, who's who knows you know hudson bays really well everybody you know it's pretty cool and it's a lot of first-hand information like the guy that's writing the article has actually done what he's writing about Dude, 100%. Yeah, they haven't, like, Googled it or just spent one night outside, you know, reviewing the scent. They were like, well, I lived in it outside of my Geo Metro and then this teepee for five years, and let me tell you about it. That's pretty cool. So, uh, Joe, how are you able to balance all the uh, the crazy stuff you're into, the, the work, the jungle travel, the family, designing knives, writing the family the family is the hardest part to balance everything with because you want to travel you want to get out there you want to you know be able to go down to uh the uh, old town cutlery you know um thing one weekend and then go up to overlander the next weekend and it's and it's really hard to at least with young kids my kids don't know it but they're going to be quite the travelers when they're older you just need to suck it up for another 15 years and then they'll leave you and you'll have all the time to go but you'll be broke yeah, <laughs> uh, that that that's probably about right. Well, um, you know, balancing everything together is you kind of make it all all work together to keep you keep you interested. You know, like my wife is talking about doing a camping trip. You know, family camping trip. And and last time we did that, I said, "Hey, we're going to do a family camping trip. Why don't we try and review a new piece of gear?" Okay, cool. I talked with a couple of local trailer makers so the one i uh, did the review on which is coming out in outdoor x4 is sylvan sports which has this trailer that turns into a tent that was really cool is it like a rooftop tent on a a compact trailer 
Yeah, it is. It is. But the trailer is multifaceted because you could load up like uh, a Harley Davidson motorcycle in it and still have that tent or um, a whole bunch of gear and still have that tent in there. So I know a place where there's about a mile of frontage on the Saluda River (laughs) and it would be perfect for a family camping trip. Well, we'll we'll get to that. But like that, that was, um, well, I was like, man, I really want to read this. So I'm going to write about it. Okay, cool. All right. So honey, what do we want to do? Oh, we want to see a waterfall, a cave and uh, uh, a zoo is what I came up. And so I found, you know, those things. And then we went all the way up to LT Wright's knife gathering, the pout house gathering. And that was our final destination. So I had a chance to talk with all my knife friends uh, review something and still be able to go outdoors with the, um, you know, my kids and my wife. She really is an angel among men, isn't she? Yeah. yeah well, she was also outdoorsy. One of the reasons I dated her. She, she knew what she was getting into before uh, she got too deep. No, not no. At all. <laughs> all, all that stuff kind of, you know, transmogrified into something later on. Shoot, <laughs> dude. The first time I went to uh, the jungle with Jeff Randall, uh, it was back in like uh, 2009, the real jungle. Um, and uh, he bet me $200 I'd be divorcing my wife within a year. And uh, uh, I won the heck out of that bet. And hmm. I want to give you props for the Calvin and Hobbes reference. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad he got that. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, you can't. And, and, and one of the things, too, is like if you're going to be making a living doing this, you really have to be loco into um, knife designing or writing. I've I've actually gotten out of writing and, and I've been working with uh, more knife designing recently because you have to be careful not to get burnt out with what you do. Every time I went out into the woods, I was like, "Gosh, I have to review this this knife or or this piece of gear," and and you know, making sure that you're you know bringing your feet back to the earth. Oh, I want to go out there to actually spend time out in the woods. You know, I got to make sure to do that. So that's something you want to always, always make sure that, that you want to do. The best way to ruin a hobby is do it for a living. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, um, that's one thing, uh, Dan, that uh, I, I, I told Gorn about, I'm like, look, if you're going to be doing this, you're going to be doing this from like a making knives from a, from a South American perspective, you would have to kill yourself to try and do it full time. So you shouldn't even make a model. You should just, you know, be like, oh, I'm going to make this today and then sell it. You know, like some makers do where they don't have like a set model or something. And, and, um, and Goran is Ten and Boca Knives. He's yes. also the local contact for the Bushcraft Global Trips. And the new version of a Bushcraft Global Trip where we are offering knife making in the jungle where you make a knife for four Ooh. days or three days. And then for four days or five days, we haven't figured it out yet, you go out and you test the knife that you made with Gorin. It's, it's so new, we don't even know what it's going to be. Well, we do. It's like three days or four days or something. We did the footage when I was down there last time uh, for the class itself. So you you're uh, of the jungle. That was the whole you can't stay extra on this trip. Well, yeah, because it would be hard to focus with anybody. Yeah. And um, so well, it really was like, Gordon, we, we need to focus and do this. Hey, no, Joe, let's go roast the pig. No, I'm here for this. Well, we roasted the pig anyway, but like. Um, in, oh, in the, the irony of Joe saying, no, we have to focus. Dude, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm saying that, it's real. It's real. I mean, like, guys, put, put, 
put your uh, put your blades <laughs> down. We need to really focus on this. And okay, um, ups. <laughs> yeah, and so like he showed me how fast he could do a knife, and I give him some scenarios. Okay, what if we do with this steel? What if somebody brings their own micarta down, and you have to use like a rasp on micarta? And he's like, "Well, crap, that'll take all day." Okay, well, what do you have to do with that? And, you have um, to explain to him that we're not using micarta. Yeah, or yeah, I'm like, or you go use that that uh, grinder you have over there that you hate using. Um, Does he but, have enough power to turn the grinder? Yeah, well, it's a it's a buffer. It's a it's a grind. What what do you call the round grinder? I mean, bench yeah, grinder. It's the little bench grinder. But I remember, like a lot of times, they didn't have enough amperage to really spin it. <laughs> you can't you can't torque you can't torque on it. That's for sure. You can't like. It takes a while, but um, that's why he uses a lot of files. Yeah. The answer to that is Macarta doesn't grow in the jungle. You're making a jungle knife. Right, right. Honestly. Um, yeah, we're going to be offering that. So it's not going to be nearly as long of a time out in the jungle with uh, uh, the indigenous, but you get to maybe hang out with Alberto, but spend three days that's, out in the jungle after you make the knife by hand. Well, that'd be a that's going to be a badass trip because you make the knife and then you go out and spend three or four days living with the knife you just made. Exactly. Exactly. And that really like puts context into what you can do with your hands, which is kind of what Bushcraft Global is about. But this one's just even more knifey. And if you want to put pressure on yourself making a knife, hey, this knife is going to have to keep me alive in two short days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like... It, it is keeping you alive, but like if it fails, you're not going to die out there. Because one, one of the things I don't want to tell people is like you, you, it's not like a life or death, you know, experience out there. It just happens to be that way sometimes when we're out there. We don't. That doesn't sound right. No, there's a safety net. Yeah, there, there, there is a safety net. But you would just be like, ah, you'll just be getting a lot of. Honestly, the safety net for that knife class is you'll be getting a lot of crap from Gorin if you don't do it right. Yeah. <laughs> Alberto will give you a sad, disappointing look and then go catch fish for you. Yeah, and then take his broken machete and just like completely own everything yeah. you've ever done. He'll make you a three bedroom house with running water and cook dinner for you. And Goran will give Get you about, I told you not to cut corners. Yeah, yeah. He'll just the whole time. <laughs> but he's a, he's a great guy to go to the jungle with, really. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we're supposed to to ask you about Coolidge, your Coolidge degrees. Oh, um, oh college. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> the word. I'm sorry. I, I hadn't seen that word before. I went and learned something once. Man, I went to a freaking engineering school and have a zoology major, and I had to learn AutoCAD off of freaking YouTube because um, I, I should have taken it. Well, I, I'm horrible were- with math. I'm sorry, you were a zoology engineer? No, I, I had nothing to do with engineer, but I had to, for Condor, I had to learn AutoCAD. Um, huh. For knife designing, it helped a lot, and it saved trees. Anyway, I went to college for um, zoology with a minor in concentration in entomology and a concentration in herpetology. But, um, man, I couldn't compete with my buddies because they were. I was like, okay, I'm into Godzilla, martial arts, knives, outdoor survival, uh fixing my jeep and they were just like yes i am only into snakes and that is it <laughs> what are you doing friday night you want to come to this party no snakes we, we are going snake hunting okay and so they were like 
much better at the reptile and amphibian aspect. So I got into entomology where you could actually make some money and get a degree in it. Well, and you met Chick. Well, yeah, well, they did too, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's the difference between entomology and zoology? So entomology is the study of bugs. More or less, you are trying to figure out a way to um, control or use bugs to benefit mankind. Um, control bugs as in like killing, you know, crop um, affecting insects or benefiting mankind, such as beekeeping or, for example, giant grubs that have three times more uh, protein than uh, meat per weight. Like Mahahoy. Right, Dan? Exactly. <laughs> so um, basically focusing on bugs. And um, I really liked bugs. I almost went to the Marines um, and then I took my first entomology class and I was like, hold on a second. I might go into the Navy because you could become a medical veterinary uh, entomologist there. Before signing the papers, NC State offered me like a basically a full ride becoming a, um, a field research technician for the Department of Entomology. And it was like free water, free internet, free room and board, free everything. And I was like, oh, okay, and, this is cool. And your father very rightfully said, no son of mine will ever join the Navy. No, uh, <laughs> he was just like, how much you like bugs? Really? Okay. Uh, I also met Ashley around that time too, so that helped. Uh, but, um, women will change your life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that that quite a bit, but, you know, the, the whole thing with the bugs is I really found a passion there. Um, that's right when I started writing for Tactical Knives Magazine um, and, and, and starting the quote-unquote knife industry world um, stuff. And so, yeah. So uh, that's actually the, one of the, the next questions. How did you get started in the, the knife industry? When I was 12 years old or 14, I can't remember when, somewhere around there, I was at the, uh, um, the NRA show up in Ohio. I'd been, you know, a complete nerd for, for um, it was either Ohio or, or North Carolina. I can't remember. But um, there was an NRA show, and I met Stephen Dick the editor of Tactical Knives Magazine. And so I walked up to the Harris Publications desk and I was like, oh my gosh, I love your magazine, um, Tactical Knives. I, I have a subscription to it. And then the lady next to me goes, oh, well, he's the editor. And I was like, oh my God, you're Stephen Dick. You know, sign my, uh, um, sign my magazine. You know, he was, you know, pretty, I guess, entertained that some little kid, you know, uh, was geeking out of him. Um, and so I was like, I need to renew my subscription, but I only have a hundred dollar bill, um, because I, uh, uh, was mowing lawns for like three different, um, neighbors and they all just put it all together in a hundred dollar bill. And so I gave them this hundred dollar bill to the editor of tactical knives magazine. And it gives me, I think $80 back and change. I go to another um, table to go buy some kind of like gun holster for a, a rifle. Um, when you're on a four-wheeler, I look in my, my uh, wallet, and there is $180 in my wallet. I gave them a $1 bill instead of the $100 bill, and they gave me 80 bucks change. Uh, hmm. And so I, I, I run back to the booth. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I, I, I totally did this. I didn't realize what was going on. And they were, like, blown away by it, I guess, because, like, some of the people were from – uh, some some harsh parts in New York or something like that. And they're like, oh, that's so great that you did that. Such an honorable kid. And and they gave me a bunch of little like tiny free Spydeco ladybugs and stuff. And 
Okay, fast forward, blah, 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 blah. Fast forward to blade forums, knife forums, circa 2004, 2006, somewhere around there. I talked with Terrell Hoffman, who is a renowned photographer for knives, a writer for Tactical Knives Magazine, and a North Carolina resident who I became really good friends with. And I'm like, Terrell, how do, how, do I, how do I write for Tactical Knives? I mean, I've been a, a knife geek since I was a kid. And he goes, well, you know, let me talk to Stephen Dick. And I was like, oh, remind him. You know, I was some kid who, you know, was back in the day. Well, Stephen Dick remind, uh, remembered me. And he was like, oh, you can write whole sentences. Uh, you know a little bit about knives. Go for it. And so that's kind of how. Look at me. I can spell. I'll write for him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was able to spell and, and, and take pictures and cut stuff. And uh, um, that's kind of where it, it, it started. Very cool. Kyle, when he gave me, you know, like my first article, it was on the um, Ron Hood ATAX. Okay. And um, you you were on, on the forums back in the day, I think, right? Uh, I've, I'm always somewhat recent to the forums since like about 2012. Uh, okay. Well, still, that's, that's pretty darn close. Um, okay. And uh, um, so Ron Hood, you know, uh, rest in peace. Um, had the survival forums, the hoodlum forums. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of just knew of him on there. And I was like, yeah, I've got the ATAX. It's like Ulu knife axe thing by Tops Knives. And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, well, I designed this, that, and the other. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So I just went out to a beach and basically survived with that tool for like three days, just camping and 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 um smashing stuff and doing that you know being a, a little kid at the time i think it was like 24 years old 20 25 something like that you know i had time to do this and uh and so the pictures were kind of crazy and, and blown blown away you know when they most most people just went out and made fuzz sticks and i was like well i smashed this crab and and then went over and had to find driftwood that i had to pull out of the water and then you know break it open with the atax and Ah, blah 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 and none of it was professional but it was all just basically like it was high energy yeah and that's that's kind of the key with it so anyway that's kind of how the the knife writing and all that stuff started very cool what's your your favorite production slash custom knife you have or want to have oh man you know i i want to i'm going to keep that away from ones i design because i'd be biased that way um and, and you know that's important too you can say oh well, i love my you know x50 you know whatever blah 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 blah. Well, you can, but um, you can categorize it you can break it down to the ones you designed the ones you didn't design well yeah. i was talking when i was talking about what ones you have i was talking about like ones you you've bought or yeah no no stuff like that not not just design i would say my one of my holy grail knives is uh the skookum bush tool um, Rod Garcia. I got, yeah, yeah. Who, who I finally met, uh, is this 2019? Yeah, I met this year, um, in Canada, but, uh, his knife really got me, you know, thinking about, um, long-term use with a knife blade. I really, really liked his knife. And honestly, the, the pterosaur, um, that, that, uh, I designed, you know, I, I, you know, told Rod, you know, Hey, look at this. I, I really took a nod from, from some things of, of your knife. He's like, yeah, that's a great, ugly knife. Um, and, uh, it came out with the pterosaur, but like, that was a big nod to, uh, um, 
um, Morris Kahansky, Rod Garcia, Skookum. Um, that is a fantastic knife. That's probably one of my holy grail knives. Um, I also really like the Rat 3, the old school one, um, just because it's so compact and so small. Um, and my honest-to-God most used knife ever is the um, Spartaco Endura um, with the Emerson Wave feature. Yeah. I absolutely freaking love that. But um, uh, I, I, I really, of course, now my, my, my go-to knife for the past like 10 years has been the Pterosaur, which Dan makes, I do. by the way. Um, um, there's only a couple of custom makers that have that pattern in there. Yeah, yeah, but not right now. I think you're the only one because for some crazy reason, and uh, it's probably because he had it for like 12 years or 15 years or something. Um, not 12 years, probably 2008. I think Andy is stopping making the pterosaur. He's cutting his patterns way back. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, it's it's been around for him for a while, and he's not making it out of, like, AEBL and, and lightsaber steel and crazy material you're making it out of. So makes sense. I had a lot of fun. I just did one for a guy in S35VN with a Firefly handle. Oh, cool. And that was probably the most fun knife I've made in a while. You know, Condor came up to me and was like, Joe, we want to do a polypropylene knife with the polypropylene sheath. It takes a lot of money to invest in um, the molds for the for the um, not polypropylene, whatever they're using, a yeah. high impact uh, PPP or whatever it is. And so they're like, it has to sell. And I was like, well, it has to be Pterosaur. Why? I just trust me. And we just came out with it this year. And it's, our, it's a $40 knife with the lifetime warranty and all that stuff, too. And then people buy it. And they're like, oh, man, this is awesome. This is an indestructible knife for 40 bucks, But I want it in a Cadillac version. I want it in something fancy. And that's when they can contact uh, uh, Dan now. The first guy I made it with, sorry, the first uh, uh, knife maker that I made it with was um, – Brian Andrews of uh, uh, Off the Map Custom Knives. And uh, the knife that I have, the original one, is beat to high heaven and in good condition, but just beat up because um, I've used it so much. And he's kind of like the guy I started with. To your point of, you know, we want to we want to make a heavy upfront investment. That's a proven pattern. I mean, yeah, it's been around for 12, 15 years for a reason. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, in any sort of designing with a knife or anything like that, there are challenges. And in order for me to really, you know, like I, I, I kind of figured it would sell. Okay, yes, but um, um, you know, there is no positivity. There's no positive, uh, uh, you know, thing that's saying that, like, hey, you know, what if somebody somebody else, you know, comes out with something like that? So when I designed it, I designed it with about fifteen other blades that fit the same sheath in uh, everything so you'll be seeing at least for the condor polypropylene condor polypropylene pterosaur handle for 2020 we're coming out with a, a full flat grind version that's not the pterosaur it doesn't have a point down center line it has more of a clip point and uh, so you'll see some other variations with that handle but um, i mean you, you have to weigh that when you're doing knife design this is all stuff that i learned uh, just you know, secondhand. I'm sure they teach you in 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 engineering. Kyle, you might be able to weigh in on that. But um, uh, you have to make it multifaceted, and that's that's just such a, a joyous challenge. I don't know how to describe it. You're like, all right, now now how are we going to make this work and fit here and there and do that? Yeah. 
Yeah. In most of my engineering classes, they didn't actually teach you like, like this is, this is what you do when it's all more teaching you a methodical systematic approach to solving a problem and tools that you can use to help solve problems. And they taught you things like if there's eight bolts, Make sure that seven are SAE and one is metric because that is funny. Yeah. Well, you got to make sure it's pokey yoked <laughs> so they can only put it on one way. Yeah. And I had to actually go from metric to inches here. So that's complete context exactly to the T. And then I lost my 10 millimeter wrench. You know, I saw, I saw a meme where you know, I just bought my son a, a 500 piece socket set and I took the 10 millimeter just so he'll learn the pain early. <laughs> okay, it's a mechanics thing. Everybody else, you're just going to have to accept it. It was funny though. Yeah, yeah. The the 15 and 18 are are pretty common ones for me too. Wait, they make so. a 15? I didn't know that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it it's crazy because like you know when I moved up to Sparta, I, he had a zoology background and an entomology background, but there was no. Um, no call for that up here. So that's when I really took knife um, designing um, to, to the next level for me. And, and I had to, you know, self-teach on AutoCAD um, on YouTube. And, and that's where that whole, like, I went to an engineering school and didn't use a lick of engineering down there. But it really helped because that's an expensive program. So a l- a few people may, may not know this, but if you have read an outdoor magazine, you have probably read one of Joe's articles. Where all have you been published? Oh, that's a good point, I, I guess. Um, hmm. Started out with Tactical Knives, Backwoodsman Magazine, SWAT Magazine, uh, Self-Reliance Illustrated, Survival Quarterly. Uh, Backpacker magazine, that was a big one. Um, I wrote for them for a while um, and still test stuff when I can. Um, I'm sure Woods Monkey, woodsmonkey.com, which is uh, still going actually with uh, um, LT Wright Knives owns it. Oh. Um, and and it, it's pretty cool because that was just a, a thing for passion for me and a couple of other writers who got tired of editors saying, no, you can't, you can't uh, review this. And we're like, man, this is cool. We know it's cool. We want to review it. Let's figure out a way to do it. And and, and so that um, started that way. Um, but I, I've, I've wrote for a, a bunch of different other magazines in other areas too, like, uh, well, Equip to Endure, for oh. example. They had an online blog too that I helped with. Sorry, did you just fall out of your chair? No. Me? No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm messing with my mic too. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Oddly enough, we picked up on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, that, that was that uh, reverberation sound. But um, you said anyway, UE and the world shifted slightly. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I shook my head a little bit because um, I had a piece of snot coming out of my nose and I had to wipe. Sorry. You know, we're going nah, yeah. to have them on for a, uh, uh, an anniversary or a, um, a reunion show shortly. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, we're going to do me, Adam, and Robbie, and Kyle. Let me know when that happens. That's awesome. Ooh, we will set you up as like a, a, a call-in. Like we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll let them go for a little while, and then we can go with, hey, we have a guy from your past that would love to speak to you. Oh, no. I, that, <laughs> don't do that, because then you'll have five people 
on a podcast and that's just that has cluster f written all over it yeah well you know once i've struck the match i just sit back and watch (laughs) dan just lets me deal with all that hey kyle can can you get on uh, editing that for me yeah i was about to say that sounds like a kyle problem i don't see why i need to worry about it (laughs) uh what are some of your favorite topics to write about um eating bugs um it's it's really really interesting to me although now i'm like behind on the times because it got, became really popular with all these vegan and low carb diets and all that stuff a lot of research has happened for that and mm-hmm. um i'm pretty sure we're going to see it as like a phase in the next like 5 years of like the the only bug diet or some some bs like that um well if you like skills, watery almonds yeah, yeah, there you go. If you, if you like squishy, alive almonds. Hey, hey, speaking of that, Dan um, Gorn brought us to a restaurant where they served them, both live and fried, last time. Like a high, high-class restaurant. I, and they had in there. I much prefer the fried to live. Um, it some of was the- incredible. What, oh man! Once they drive some of the moisture out, and it kind of condenses the the flavor and the texture, I I found that much more palatable than when they tried to crawl out of my mouth. <laughs> you don't have to bite the heads off of these. Yeah, yeah, and it tasted like egg rolls too, man. You put some soy sauce on there, you're you're having a great night, All right. for sure. So to catch up, everybody else, we're talking about mahahoy which are palm weevils, correct? Yep, you got it. Um, it's, it's a large three-inch beetle, which kind of looks like a, the Michelin man without legs and arms. And the, the larvae are about the size of my thumb, and you will find them in decomposing palm trees. Uh, they are so proteinaceous that they are looking at them as sustainable um, livestock source, quote-unquote, because they're – they have more protein per gram, three times more protein per gram than a piece of beef. You know, it's not always about the protein. Sometimes it's about the pleasure <laughs> of the meat in your mouth. You're right. And there, there's not so much <laughs> with those. So that's a very understandable statement. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, do we have other memes like a soundboard? Uh, Kyle has an extensive... Dan just said something I need to cover up soundboard. Uh, okay. Yeah, get to the chopper. <laughs> I can I can add that one That's in. That's a good one to have, I think. Yeah, we need that one. Uh, our favorite right now is um, Todd Hunt's name in Sasquatch. That's a pretty good one. What? Like his name translated in the Sasquatch dialect? Yeah, well, you know he was born a Sasquatch, and they shaved him down and raised him in an orphanage. Um, Today I learned. Yeah. <laughs> Here you go. How will you live? I just have a horrible, horrible, horrible visual of Todd Hunt shaven. <laughs> we love you, Todd. Yeah. Sorry, Todd. I'll, I'll go pray later. Uh, yeah, I think I think the eating, bringing it back around to the eating bugs thing. I. I I think uh, Andrew Zimmerman on the TV show, the the Bizarre Eats thing, kind of somewhat popularized that in, in a bunch of areas, kind of eating different bizarre foods in different areas. And um, 
I know I know there's a ton of the like uh, snout to tail type stuff uh, that's kind of going through. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, where's, it's, where's it's the sensationalism work, that you can have. That. Can't use that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's all been sensationalized on on, um, TV and and on, you know, the Internet as well. When you eat something gross and disgusting, people just – they had the cringe factor where they can't look away, man. You know, so how Bear Gryllis got his, his, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, starting drinking pee and whatnot, you know. It's just you can't stop watching. And then now – you can do it. Any of us can do it. You know, my favorite, well, my favorite outdoor meme is Bear Grylls squeezing moisture out of ele- elephant dung, and then the next one is uh, Les Stroud sitting next to a stream with a salmon roasting on uh, cedar, and it says, "Always go to wood. Always go to the woods with the fat guy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of one of my favorite Bear Grylls episodes was. Uh, when he took Will Ferrell out into oh, the, oh yeah, into that the, was incredible, into like, dude. <laughs> the, that, got, that was pretty funny. But anyway, back to talking about uh, about you. Do you have any advice for someone that uh, wants to get into doing writing or reviews or publications? Yeah, you know, honestly, the it, skill set. You know, the more stuff you do. Um, and Gorm would be laughing at this because he still like yells at me because he thinks I sharpen wrong when we're out in the field. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the more experience you get with doing stuff and the more different things you learn how to do, you know, the more interesting you become. You know, if you're just out there batoning and making a, 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 a fuzz stick, then now you're a bushcraft instructor, you know, you, you, you want to get away from that. You want to do something interesting like, you know, making a Pepsi can stove from just a knife or, you know, doing, you know, this side or the other. When, once you're able to think outside of the box, you know, you're you're able to do some really cool stuff. Cool. Um, where do you see the, the outdoor publication industry going? Oh, man, that's such such an open basket because uh take a minute you know drink think about it no 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 it's 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 very interesting because like like places like backpacker are still doing the exact same thing they need to be doing which is reviewing the brand new gear um reviewing this that and the other and showing you the um intrinsic um nature of the things but the the interesting thing now is we're in a, an era, and this isn't just with outdoor gear reviews or this, that, and the other, where it has to happen right now. It has to, we need to get it. We, we see a new album come out. We listen to it for five seconds on YouTube, and then we're like, oh, we either like it or we hate it. Whereas back in the day, you know, we bought a CD, and we made an investment in that CD, and we listened to the whole CD, and we got to figure out all the different stuff the artist was doing. And when you look at a review for uh, – uh, a knife or for a, um, a sleeping bag, you know, they just go out for like one day and just go, okay, what well, does this, that, and the other, and then they're done. And you're like, well, hold on a second. You know, back in the day we had to do 1500, uh, uh, words and, and really get to know the knife or really get to know that product or really get to know how to sharpen or really get to know, you know, this skill set instead of this immediate, you know, okay, this is how you make cordage right away and and you know, okay that's how you reverse wrap paracord 
that's not how to do like 8,000 other things that we could do. So there should be a step back into learning all the other things that you can do, such as the different ways of sharpening. Dan, the different interesting ways of sharpening and putting a micro bevel on a, a scanning <laughs> knife versus keeping it a, a zero degree because there's so many different things you can do with that instead of just go out and baton the knife and say, oh, the ABL chipped a little bit. So this is a, a, a horrible steel with uh, this grind and blah, 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 you know. I'm ranting now, but like that it was that, that was very educational when we we're cross grain cutting black palm with different grinds and seeing even when it was the same steel, seeing how small adjustments to the grinds really changed the performance. Right, right. And there's there's you know uh, uh uh, a small lack of that level of information out there because everybody wants everything immediately. You know, what do you do when you're on Amazon? You go look at the reviews right away. You go, okay, this this uh, car, this radar detector sucks because the f- first five reviews here in in the first reviews on YouTube that this guy did an out of box reveal uh, say that this radar detector sucks, and you know there's not the level of really getting to know stuff anymore. You know, and um, I would get very frustrated if I sent a knife for review and the review came up within a few weeks, I would get frustrated because I knew that they didn't really put it to its paces. Right. Um, right. Or get to know it. Yeah. I think it was, uh, I think it was Ruben that, I mean, he used one for almost a year before he did. A- oh gosh. Yeah. Ruben, Ruben is a classic knife user um can do all sorts of different stuff with the knife and and, you know between him and i we were like you know custom makers would worry to send this stuff because they get bashed knives back um not you know like abuse but just like oh what the heck did you do well we used it yeah if it's not scuffed up you didn't review it um and that was the that was the thing i appreciated about y'all is yeah, it would be six or eight months before the review came out because you actually used it for months at a time. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, you know, I, I've had to you know crunch some reviews pretty quickly to help somebody. But like, you know, when, when you get to that level of of doing stuff, you're like, okay, I'm just going to spend all day making a cooks out of it. And if I don't know the ergonomics of the nut, of this knife after spending four hours carving with it, then I'm an idiot. Um, which is still debatable, but, um, <laughs> you know, but that, that's all right. This is just for the context wise knife designs. I mean, you're looking at this at a whole new level with the, with the internet age, you know, we, we, we have this now where we're just like, okay, blah, 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 and then we don't get into the next, um, set of skills with all that. A baton to cinder block. Therefore it's an outstanding knife. Next review. Right. Right. But you know, there, there's benefits of that too, and this is just in reference to where you see the knife and outdoor, you know, uh, information and review industry, you know, happens. Um, what's the first thing you do nowadays? At least for me, if something's screwed up on my car, well, if I'm going to do like a a wheel bearing replacement on my Jeep, you know, I go to YouTube. And that's the first thing I look at, you know, and I'm sure some mechanic is like, well, they're forgetting all the other different ways of taking off the nut or, you know, something like that. So, you know, between any of these skills, there's probably some curmudgeon saying you're doing it wrong in the background or something. But Especially, the, um, especially knife sharpening. But I start a lot of my classes with when I was in the Army and they were starting a training, 
it would always go, there's a right way, a wrong way, and the army way. I don't give a <laughs> about the right way or the wrong way. I'm teaching you the army way. That's the same thing with beekeeping. You get three beekeepers together, you get nine different opinions on something. So I always go with, look, there's a right way, there's a wrong way, there's my way. I've been doing my yeah. way for 15 years and it works, so that's what I'm going to teach you. Mm-hmm. But you've been doing it for 15 years. You didn't just regurgitate some YouTube video of some other guy doing it. Yeah. But, but I, my, my last tidbit is I really like the entertainment value that oh. some people put into it, you know, where it's not just like a boring review. They like put together a whole theatrical stage yeah. of, of the review. That's entertaining as all get out. Too. Although my favorite guy, I haven't seen him do a review. And actually, I don't think he's ever spoken a word on camera. But it's that kid down, and I think in Australia. Oh, yeah. see, there you go. But that's the theatrical aspect of it. Oh yeah, because he you know, he's just demonstrating out. and doing it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he made a blower. To, he made a fire pit, and then made a blower, and then baked the clay to make the shingles. I mean, and that dude's made millions of dollars. No BS. He deserves it. Do you know why? Because he did it different. Yeah. He didn't just sit there and go, "We're going to do some." Uh, uh, I can't even remember the nomenclature for this bifractal, you know, shavings of this, uh, the Flint nappers are going to kill me. Um, yeah, the, you know, nothing else. Yeah. You know, he just did it. He's just like, all right, going to start digging. Yeah. Started digging. Yeah. And he did it. I'm just going to do it this way. And apparently it works. I, I like it when, when, uh, the outdoorsman or, or whoever is doing something, does it out of the box like that that quit that crazy i think it's um vietnamese or malaysian like smart girl catch yeah. fish with strap yeah oh man um she did a snake trap too with a recycled fan cage yeah 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 smart smart girl catch fish with, with fan or yeah smart girl catch catch snake oh dude those are awesome nice. so there so there there's a point in time now where we have all this information and and we're getting you know like a lot of regurgitation but every once in a while there are gems like you know a, a, a person catching pythons with the fan trap and stuff out there so it's it's kind of an interesting time in that aspect and to try and have somebody get into that think outside the box well and it's it's a little bit of a uh, a treasure hunt too you're shifting through the regurgitation to try to find the the unique thing and kyle that's why i think um buying a book on knife making that was a hundred dollars mm-hmm. you're 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 going into that level of of information where you're becoming an academic you're becoming somebody who's an expert in the subject because you're willing to put okay not everybody has a hundred dollars put on a on a on a book right mm-hmm. but um you know and not saying those who do those who don't but like somebody has enough passion to say hey this might be worth putting a little bit of that time into you know there are gems out there yeah yeah bob loveless is one of the more famous uh and prolific uh knife makers of the recent time so he's got a lot to to learn from now does he have that dvd hold on i think i have it right here I absolutely love his theory on handle design. No, it's Ed Fowler, not Bob Loveless. I'm an idiot. Good God. How long has Loveless been, been passed away for? Uh, not long. Five, um, ten years. Okay. He didn't put – well, I'm, I'm looking remember. at Ed Fowler's um, uh, uh, DVD right now. Bearing to Blade Finish Knife. He's, he's a really cool writer too. Yeah, I've got some of his stuff, the things he made. I had a 5200. Yeah, cool. 
it's uh, I I love I love reading his his articles and yeah, stuff. Yeah, knife talk, knife talk. I've too. got some books. Mm-hmm. Those are really really cool books. Yeah, I starting to build my knife library. I was, or I think we talked about it a little bit in the the pre show, but Tom Crine of uh, Crine Knives, he on the Mark of the Maker podcast is really uh exposed me to a lot of books and then uh i'm like well that one just made the list now thanks tom for making me spend another hundred plus dollars on another book so i am going to send some emails <laughs> to tom crine because uh i actually took some of his regrinds on my ex my first expedition um down in brazil and uh known okay. him for a while well known of him for a while he just sent me a night we don't like hanging out but um he probably has some good books to recommend Oh man, he has, he has a, probably the, I would say he has probably the most extensive book library oh. of most of the, the makers that I've ever seen. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at that because I went to Morris's, Morris Kahansky's house. He's got over 250,000 books. <laughs> well, are they all on bushcraft no, stuff? No, or? he has sections, <laughs> knife making, knives, okay. bushcraft. His bushcraft section is amazing. And there's, there's, a, there's another thing. Okay, hanging out with Morris was awesome. Yeah, we can go into that. And, and, and you know, a lot of the people um, who might be listening to this either know Morris or don't. But um, he's like the dude from the edge. He retains all the knowledge that he reads, but he has an extensive mm-hmm. library. Going to that library, his house, and seeing the books that exist that I never knew about from Australian bushcraft, there is a whole level of bushcraft with wire that nobody ever thought about. Apparently, if you don't go out in Australia with a with a um, uh, a roll of wire, you're going to die. Yeah, bailing wire, bubble gum, and bailing wire <laughs> will fix anything. Dude, it's incredible the stuff that they did. They're like, yeah, you need to make a nail, use wire. Blah blah blah. This use wire. Super cool. I got scans of that stuff, but like, man, I never thought about it. It was like, why, why are you worrying about a pot hook when you can just use wire? Well, and that's one of the interesting things. And it can also be kind of a dangerous, but the environmental concerns, like what is perfectly logical, outstanding woodsman technique in one environment will get you killed in another. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. And then you know, like the guys in the UK—no offense or anything—we're talking about. Well, we can't do that in our parks and stuff. And a lot of uh, other guys here too are. Well, we can't do that in our parks either. And then you know, then you're getting to the point where people are talking about packing their feces out <laughs> and, and and stuff. So it's also allowances of what you're allowed to do too. But I want to bring wire next year on the Bushcraft Global Trip. You might as well. No, and I just meant more along the lines of. I've always found it fascinating because there's things that'll work almost universally. I mean, watching the Matisse do a hand drill fire in the rainforest, uh, apart from being fascinating and absolute master level fire makers, but you can see the hand drill work in all different environments. But then you see an argument between a machete and a, uh, a tomahawk. Well, it really depends on the environment you're in. You're both right, depending on where you are, which means you could also be equally wrong. Oh, man. Gordon and I have gotten into it about a big knife and a small knife, and I still haven't figured out like the right way to argue with him about this. Because I'm like, it's harder to do big knife tasks with a small knife than it is to do small knife tasks with a big well, knife. I have found- He's like, Joe, I don't believe oh. that. And I'm like, well, that's because you're trying to sell tiny little knives to everybody right yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you got to start with 
Listen, you individual. Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, that's easy for me to say here in South Carolina while he's down in Columbia. Uh, he's not going to stab you or anything, but just like, like I'm, I'm giving my knife talk. He's like, no, Joe, that's not right. Because like, look, I could still make camp with a small knife. I'm like, Alberto's not using a small knife right now, Goran. You don't do surgery with the machete, Joe. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, which is why, right. I, which is why I carry a small knife and a big knife with the added advantage of if I break one, I've got another one. And for big knife task, I use a big knife. See, I'm not a good arguer. I want to have like a uh, like bulletproof argument just to make him be quiet for a minute. Well, <laughs> back to lift. Yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, Dan, you're crazy. Eden, this is in an Austrian accent or, or, uh, or whatever. Dan, you're crazy. I've been a Colombian for 25 years. Yeah, I, I love his Serbian accent by way of Germany, by way of Colombia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's hilarious. Sorry, well, Gordon might actually listen to this. He's about to go travel um, across Brazil and and some of South America in a VW bus in the next twelve days. Joe, don't worry about it. including our wives. We only got four listeners, so there's no chance he's going to hear this. Like live. No, total. Dude. I, I, <laughs> oh, okay, because I was like, my wife is listening to this. So. No! I, I don't know who misled you into thinking that we have listeners, but it, it's just our wives and, like, uh, I think Kyle's cousin. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> Let's talk about the dynamite stories. And I am totally not WhatsApping uh, Goran right now. To <laughs> Oh, I would have gotten messaged. He would have been like, listen, dudes. Hey, you guys need to talk about that one time we put a whole bunch of thermite on a pine tree and cut it in half. Oh, yeah. Oh, or when we made the pineapple grenade. Right, right. Yep. That was, we, that, wasn't that the same thing? No, that was too No, no, no. We blew, we blew up the pineapple afterwards. Yeah. Uh, that was at uh, Jungle Joe's Children's uh, Summer Camp and Warrior Training Center. Also, that's where I was hunting this morning. And we will get to that, but first I want to talk about snakes, bugs, crawly things, and adventures, and what is your favorite playground? Oh, geez. Um, I, you know what? As far as America, I love Florida. I love the Everglades because uh, it's on the American dollar, and I don't have to, like, use my passport. And uh, Charlotte has, a um, like, a two-hour flight to the Keys if you, if you want to get in that area or Miami. And I've just been going down there since, like, the early 2000s just snake hunting. If you hit the right time, you can catch like 30 snakes a night in the Everglades. Photograph them, let them go, or just look at them so you don't get in trouble with the rangers. Um, there is a problem in the Everglades of invasive species like pythons that are exploding because they don't have natural predators to keep them in check. And they're actually having a very negative effect on the, the ecology of the Everglades. Yeah, so you have invasive um, Burmese pythons that, that kind of started in the early 90s and have completely exploded because it left a niche of this um, arboreal super animal that's able to climb trees and eat all the different types of migratory birds, and they just exploded out there. To the point now, as of this year, I, I haven't verified this, but someone told me um, last week that they're offering 50 bucks for a five-foot um, python 
and you know a dollar for each foot afterwards or something like that gosh these idiots don't know where to look yeah. uh if you go to the right place i can get like five six a night so um, um i'll pay for gas okay <laughs> if you want to go we can go hey i uh uh some guy paid me to guide um him for a uh, trip uh, right before the bushcraft global trip a guy uh, a cool friend now for who owns a dogwood pterosaur huh? from canada paid me extra to meet him three days earlier in uh, miami and take him around the uh, outskirts of the everglades to snake hunt and it was super fun as long as you reach in the hole first i'm down there's no reaching in the hole down there man <laughs> the most common snake is a cotton mouth is bad news. Speaking of most common snakes and cotton mouths and copperheads and close calls, have you had any close calls when you're out there? I got bit by a copperhead once. Um, we were tagging them with um, RFID chips um, in the sand hills of South Carolina uh, for a uh, really cool um, survey on movement patterns. And uh, long story short, I was with a guy who was new at bagging snakes, and and a mistake happened, and I got bit. Um, my fault because uh, I shouldn't have been picking up a snake. I had to go to the hospital, told them no for the anti-venom. I had to spend two days there. Then the um, hand surgeon comes in and goes, God, I don't know why they kept you here. You need to go home. See ya. Um, case in point, anti-venom costs like $2,000 a vial or something. And sometimes they use four vials. I didn't want to pay the copay on that. And um, a snake's venom is measured by the LD50 lethal dose for 50 um, rats, more or less, I'm trying to summarize this. So it's yeah. not 100% accurate. Basically, this venom is really, really weak compared to other animals, um, other snakes. Well, and it also and, had to do with where you were bitten, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and I had them test my blood, and my blood work was good. So um, I, I took an executive decision, and I have not regretted it because if you would get bit, um, this was back in the day when they used a different type of crow fab, a different type of antivenom. Um, if you were bit by one type of snake and then you had to get injected by the antivenom and then you were bit by like a bad snake, like a, a water moccasin, you run the uh, risk of having a horrible reaction just to the antivenom. Um, so I wanted to, you know, like save that, you know, extra life for like a really bad snake. <laughs> so um, a combination of Joe's advanced education, where he got bitten, and he might be so mentally unstable that he also picks up really nasty venomous snakes i don't anymore uh, not after that um uh, and that was more or less we had to move real quick because we were bagging these snakes because uh, it was a really good night in like every five minutes there'd be another snake crossing but yeah I, don't pick up hot snakes i just didn't want the liability of somebody going to the emergency room going no no, no. i heard this guy on a podcast that told me i shouldn't get the antivenom. oh and I, uh good context i also called my herpetologist um uh, uh, not buddy. He was my professor, and said, "What would you do?" And he goes, "Honestly, I I would not do it based on the information that you gave me." I said, "Okay, um, I will take that into consideration." And he taught. He was an Australian, got bit by a sea snake, and told the hospital how to treat him. Wow! So I trusted that dude. Yeah. Um. And uh, uh, anyway, that's the context of why I did that. And that's neither good nor bad, or, or it's just how it was. In this um, very specific set of circumstances, that was Hey, Dan. Yep. Did you hear about the scorpion? Um, the one that we shouldn't have been messing with or the one that you did mess with? 
the one that was in my backpack on this trip backpack and i got nailed by uh and was yeah uh actually all i heard was alberto was a little concerned he was he got white in the face um you know it's like oh okay this could be interesting and then i had the guy um we have a uh uh almost on every trip just depending um we have a uh a wilderness first responder with us um and he came by with the oxygen sensor and put it on my hand he was like oh you're calm and i'm like uh, could be worse. And, um, on the outside dude no well it's i've gotten it's not near it didn't hurt nearly as bad as the one time when uh, an undergrad dropped a whole hive of bees on me when we were loading him from the yeah. uh, uh bee, bee yard so i mean it wouldn't sound like a tough guy or whatever but i'm used to venomous animal um instances and it sucked and it hurt a lot and i did a little dance but then i was like all right if i start getting all worked up i'm gonna spread this all over my body and so i just calmed down and was like okay what are we looking at here you know and uh <laughs> and blood pressure is I good all that stuff too step one am i going to die well i asked gorn that he's like how do you feel i'm like fine he's like okay then you're fine like, <laughs> gorn. and like in like, alberto he's like i'd be down for a week and i'm like okay well that's alberto being a drama queen because he doesn't want to work sometimes <laughs> um so like I was just like, all right, whatever. I popped a Benadryl and went and slept in a hammock for like two hours and woke up and was fine. Had like a springy hand feeling, but um, other than that. So for clarification, Alberto is the head guide and hunter. Yeah, he's a Yukuna um, uh, Indian down there. If I remember correctly, he came out of the bush in his early 20s. Mm-hmm. So he, I mean, he absolutely lived – what most people read about in his early twenties. He's not sure how old he is because he doesn't remember that it was a long time ago. Yeah. In, in the modern aspect though. So he wasn't like the Matisse tribe. Who's like the Matisse tribe were first contact in the 19 early 1980s. They still wear, you know, their traditional beads and garbs and bones, you know, or snail shells through their nose and stuff like that. Um, When they hunt, they hunt with bows and arrows because it's cheaper um for them um alberto was a modern yakuna who lived out in the bush until he was like 20 so he had a gun and he'd like you know trade and get you know um now he had a a firearm that was his grandfather's from the 1920s wasn't it? Yeah, yeah yeah i i we say gun and it's put together with like like bailing wire and stuff yeah it, it, a single shot 16 gauge from the 1920s that his grandfather got during the rubber boom yeah, it's there, and that's that's what you do with either sixteen gauge or or almost nothing down there. Um, but he also is um, uses a blowgun because once again the uh, ammunition's cheaper. Um, and one of the phenomenal tricks that you will get to see if you go on the trip is he can knock a cigarette pack out of your hand at what forty yards? Out of my hand, not not clients. Yeah. <laughs> no, I meant specifically your hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but he was he was aware of the modern world, and it was in his 20s when he decided, hey, I'm going to walk 100 kilometers out of the bush and check this stuff out. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, he when we say modern, he, he wore like T-shirts and, 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 and pants, and now he's like, you know, completely modern. He has a cell phone. I don't know if he has WhatsApp. 
You know, like kind of do. He kind of doesn't. I don't know. It changes every five minutes because he breaks them. He wore modern clothing, but for a significant part of his life, he lived or died off of what he could forge or kill. Yeah, well, he still does that. He hates white people food. <laughs> uh, he, he smoked monkey. He smoked animals and um, brought them back to his wife because we, we uh, had an abundance of them. I was like, are you going to share this with any of, our, any of the group? He's like, no, I'm taking this back to my family. What the heck, man? You guys have tons of food. Okay, I guess that's right. Yeah. So we've kind of been uh, dancing around it. Uh, all these people that you talk about, they're part of Bushcraft Global. Do you want to talk a little bit about what Bushcraft Global uh, her, yes. is? The of Bushcraft Global is you don't talk about Bushcraft Global. No, we talked about it. We want people on it. I got to be able to keep doing it. Bushcraft Global, I'm the um, owner of the company Bushcraft Global, which is a uh, survival knife-based um, adventure down in South America where we deal with three different countries, Colombia, Brazil, and Peru. Um, you're right in the tri-corner, so you can walk five minutes into one country, five minutes into the other. We bring people down there, and it's a survival vacation. I say vacation because like, you get to eat the whole time while you're down there. You get to live like a king, um, but you're out in the middle of nowhere using just your knife, other tools. We supplement with other food and that, but um, you're learning all these bushcraft skills that you've never read about, that you've never seen before, and really getting to know yourself and your knife and just saying not having a really good time camping, but you're in the middle of the Amazon jungle, um, catching piranha every single day, um, going out hunting um, – various uh uh mammals with thumbs that hang out in trees in yeah. some cases um and and all sorts of other you know things caiman uh alligators and stuff like that it's not a hunting trip uh we didn't eat one caiman on the last trip we caught them we caught like seven or eight of them hugged them and then let them go um because we have so much food on the trip uh you could if you wanted to you know butcher these animals but i'm also you know a conservation person so i'm gonna be careful of that on the trip, you come down, you hang out for two days in, in a place called Leticia, Colombia. Then then uh, we get you all geared up. Make sure you have the right gear. Make sure you're not bringing extra stuff. Bring you out to the jungle for nine days. Um, and uh, you either hike out or we take you in a boat. Um, well, and that first – that introductory period has a lot to do with touch, don't touch. Right. So there, there are a lot of – the jungle is a green heaven. Don't be afraid about all the, like, like oh, this will kill you, that will kill you, this will kill you. There are things that are out there that are dangerous, but there's just as much problems when you're walking around Charlotte, North Carolina, in the city, and you have to be careful of the Uber drivers looking at their phone. Um, so there's caterpillars that will give you a bad time. Um, you get to learn to look for snakes. You'll have a bad time if you get hit by them. You have to look for snakes, but it's not snake-infested. Um, you have to... Uh, be careful when you're out there uh, doing that. So whatever Dan's about to say about being extreme, yeah, it's kind of extreme, but it's not like something that you should be scared of. That was a problem with one of the YouTubers. He tried to make it so extreme that we're like, dude, we haven't gotten one person from there because everybody's scared to come on uh, the trip because they think it's some kind of survival. Uh, what I was going to point out to you was I was really concerned about the snakes until Goran said, you're from, you're from Georgia, South Carolina, right? Yeah, he goes, you got snakes there, right? Like, yeah. He said, you ever been bitten? Well, no. I, you know, I'm careful. I don't put my feet where snakes are going to be, and I pay attention. Said, Same thing here, dude. 
and it was just something about that chain and that perspective of, you know, there's risk everywhere you go. You just have to be aware of that risk. And it's the same thing down there. Yeah. There's stuff that'll, that'll make your day really unpleasant, but there's stuff that'll make your day really unpleasant in New York city or back, uh, back parts of the Appalachians. You just got to be aware of it. Like disgruntled knife customers. No. <laughs> But, but, you know, like, honestly, like snake wise. Okay. Some guys are like, Joe, I want to go, but I'm, I'm afraid of snakes. Dude, I brought a herpetology nut with me last trip and we stayed up till three o'clock in the morning, almost every morning looking for snakes. And we only saw two snakes all trip. Uh, um, I've been on six trips and we've seen three snakes out of that. Yeah. So everything lives out in the jungle by not being seen. And that's an important point. You know, the, the easier out in the jungle, the easier it is that you're more cryptic. You're not able to be seen. Um, it's better. But anyway, back to the trip, as far as hazards go, uh, the biggest hazard is you end up wanting to stay. Um, <laughs> honestly, that's it. Um, last trip we, uh, and Dan, you haven't been on one of these versions cause, um, we have some new property down there, but it's in between two huge lakes. We were able to catch fish, I think, five, maybe six different ways. One, with the machete. Two, with a bow, a small little bow that you make yourself and the Matisse help you make down there. Um, three was a slingshot and a ball. Four was a slingshot and the arrows that we use from the small bow because we were able to use those arrows with the slingshot easier than the bow. Um, five is uh, traditional fishing tackle which you're catching peacock bass out there. now. Mm. That's like a $5,000 trip um, in some cases. And everybody that went out there caught a peacock bass and tons of, of piranha, um, other really cool, hard fighting fish, um, really weird catfish at night that almost stripped the line. They move so quick. Um, like it's almost like bone fishing. Um, what's the crazy stuff? What's the, the, it's kind of a slim body. It's got a really long dorsal fin. And when it hits, it comes from Bono and it'll hit the bait and almost come out of the lawn. Yeah. Yeah. That, you catch those like crazy out there. One guy caught five within an hour. Wow. Um, just by putting, taking his, his, his pole and, and throwing the lure right, right next to the bank and pulling back on it. And he'd hit almost every single time. They hit, um, they hit like a, like something that hits really hard. <laughs> I can't think of anything either. Uh, uh, spear. So that's number six. I had to think about. It. I'm like, what's the sixth thing? And we spear a whole bunch of stuff. So you know, we went crazy on the bushcraft skills last trip. Everybody made their own knife out there, um, where we brought knife blade blanks down, and they. Um, I learned a really cool primitive way of of making knives at the bushcraft symposium up in Canada which was incredible um, and, and no glue um, making your own knife out of a blade blank. And, you know, the materials around you, everybody made stools. We made uh, slingshots this time, simple shot provided a slingshot making kit and everybody made their own slingshots. Cool. Um, we made our own slingshot ammunition out of uh, clay that we dived down to the bottom of the lake and pulled up a bunch of clay with and, and, and made our own stuff there. I, I'm forgetting like 300 different things, but uh, we made a mask, netting needles. Um, 
the ceremonial mask for the uh... yeah yeah the Medellin Medellin mask. Yeah. So they dress up like a creepy forest critter and then whip you with these uh, plants. Oh, dude, this was pretty cool. This time the Matisse took me out to gather um, the stuff with them. It was almost like a ritual. That was the only one allowed to come out with them and go gather and prep for the Medellin. Um, that was pretty special. Um, Bobby Bushcraft has still got a scar across his abdomen. Great. <laughs> got his money's worth. Yeah. I'm looking at my abdomen. I don't have a scar. I had, Man. I had a welt for maybe three weeks, but I don't have a mark anymore. So they, so everything the Matisse do, the Matisse tribe is the most permanent tribe that we work down there is based off of pain because you deal with pain. You're able to deal with the, um, well, yeah, isn't it life hurts? So you just got to learn to deal with pain. Right, right, right. And, um, also the Matisse don't have any sort of, um, like, uh, what's it called? The uh, child, um, punishment, right? So like, you, you steal from mommy, you don't get the whip. The mayor, the Medivin will take care of it later. So like in the village, just, um, uh, the Medivin spirit, the forest spirit comes by and whips everybody, especially pregnant women, especially kids. Um, and what it is is a mask and the whole body of the human is, is painted blue or charcoal colored. And it's just um, some ferns for its midsection. And uh, he makes these hoots and hollers and has these special trees um, which have a horrible, horrible <laughs> whipping sound in the air, like like cracking before they even move their hand in the air. And it whips across your body all the way to the front. And um, it's, of course, it's optional. You don't have to do the ceremony. But um, they whip you with this and, and you go through the ceremony and you feel awesome afterwards. Um, but they beat pregnant women with it. And kids, if the kids are real bad, they get the snot beaten out of them. <laughs> Um, during one of these rituals and you can look up the ritual um, on I believe Bruce Perry's Bruce I can't remember what his name is but if you look up the Matisse tribe on 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 YouTube you'll be able to find it so what's uh what's some of the requirements for people to go on the trip um honestly uh, that's a really good question um you know you'd think you'd have to be like an ex-marine like like super fit person I kind of designed these trips to really be effective for anybody to come. I mean, two years ago, we had solar panels for the um, uh, CPAP machine uh, for one guy who who is uh, um, a, a very large individual who, who didn't sleep well. Um, so we had him taken care of. Um, and, and so there are various stages. We're like, well, man, I don't want to go on no Nimly Pimly trip. Well, that's cool. All right, come out on the trip. You didn't have to do the, you know, nine mile hike in or anything like that because now we have a boat for this particular trip this year. But you want the hardcore version art? Go with Alberto. Hey, Alberto, what's up? Uh, go at your normal pace. <laughs> okay, good luck keeping up with Alberto because you will die. Um, and and he'll be out all day long hunting. And if you just say, all right, this guy wants this guy, you know, is fit. You know, he he wants to have a little bit more of a of um, uh, a more challenging experience all right alberto go look for some big game and you know nine hours later he'll come back and pass out in front of his hammock because uh, he's so tired um and it's not like hey let's just do it to this guy it's just like this is what you'd have to deal with if you're trying to do this on a day-to-day -day basis you have to be yeah. at this level and so we have something to offer for everybody there um you know the the young guys on the last year's trip were out every single night 
um, fishing with their with their um, their spears and with their tools and stuff. And you know, some of the guys just chilled around camp and just you know BS because that's what they wanted to do. So it's 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 entirely up to you. But you know, like there's a level of extremeness that happens on every single trip. You know, and um, but it's really open for everybody. Um, and and if you have any questions, you can just ask me at uh, bushcraftglobal at gmail dot com. Um, hey, you know, Joe, I've got, you know, uh, 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 a really bad back problem. Well, okay, well, we'll make it so that, you know, I haul half the gear, you haul a bit of gear, but we'll make it yeah, work we can, for you. You can make it as um, hard or as easy as somebody wants. Right, right. You know, like, I want extreme survival trip. Okay, just don't give him any food. He has to go get it himself. Where? And, and <laughs> we'll, we'll all be chilling, eating some delicious rice, and he'll have to just munch on this uh you know, Some of the fish. early trips were your choices were hard or really hard. And I remember a trip where like everybody was doing bushcraft stuff and Goran sat everybody down at lunch. It was like, look, we're out of protein. Everybody fishes today. And those were pretty brutal. But now you've kind of got it tuned down to it can be as hard as you want it to be. Well, yeah. And honestly, it's just because we're next to the lake. And if you can't catch a fish. Yeah. Well, we have methods for you to be able to catch a fish no matter what we were doing fish trapping on this one um and honestly because of i mean this is just next to your strip it's because it's so it's next to a lake you get to change the type of jungle that you get in so you know we were just next to one creek and we only saw one type of jungle you get to see two or three different types of jungle when you're out there on I, i'm excited for alex to go on this trip it's it's going to be a good trip for him um and and you know there's still um way more piranha on this trip than any other trip that we've had it's so awesome the, i've the only time i caught piranha was when i stayed late with goran and we went to a lake the when we were fishing the streams i never caught piranha um it was a, a little bass species and a catfish species yeah yeah this is um eight, you know that's that's kind of the beauty of these trips is every single trip is different. You know, it's never just like that. And they're like, you know, Gordon, Hey dude, what do you want to do this year? I don't know, Joe, what are you thinking of? Where are we going to be by a lake? Let's make some rafts or let, let's make a dugout canoe and show people how, how hard it is and why we're going to quit right in the middle of it because we only have a week long to make it <laughs> and, and stuff. So like, Every, every trip is different. You see something on every single trip that's completely different from the last one. Yeah, I've, I've been on six very separate trips. I mean, it was it, well, one of the reasons to keep going back is it's always a new trip. So how much uh, does it cost for the, the package and stuff? And how many people do you have signed up to go so far besides uh, Dan and Alex? Um, well, <laughs> right now I have four people and it's out of ten. Um, I have not pushed it in, uh, sadly, if you look at my website, meaning you see, I don't have to push it that much. I need to get a new website soon. Hey guys, if you're a web developer, message me. Um, but, uh, it's $2,500 and that's for 12 days. Um, well, 15 days, including Bogota and all that stuff too. So 12 to 15 days, um, everything's included, but your plane flights, which you can get from anywhere from, 500 to 900 dollars just depending on on um where you're coming from 
Um, Dan, were you about to say something? Sorry. No, I was. Well, I was going to ask you answered the question before I could ask was if that was the total package or if that was just the the in the bush side. Yeah, it's just everything except for the plane flight. So, so everything. So twenty five hundred dollars, and then you'll need plane tickets and some souvenir money. Right, right. Souvenir money or money to tip the guides, um, the indigenous guides, um, and 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 also money to buy one of Goran's knives because you end up wanting one by the end of it, um, or Dan's knives if he comes. Um, I've actually and I've got two Goran knives. Yeah, well, there you go. And he has a couple of Dan knives. So. He does. Dogwood knives. So, you know, just be prepared that you're going to be wanting to – you make some items that will last a lifetime that come with you, but you're going to be wanting to buy some stuff. People normally buy hammocks or something like that um, along there, and um, it includes transportation from the airport all the way to the hotel rooms, all the way to this, that, and the other, including a tops knife. Um, a company I also designed for. I designed for Condor Tool Knife and uh, Tops Knives. And the Tops Knife will either be a, uh, a Joe Flowers designed Rakimo or the um, Machete, the uh, 230 Machete, um, or the uh, a Gorin's Knife, the Tanaboka Puko. Cool. So what, what kind of things do people need to bring with them other than some sort of sleeping pack and things like that? or what all do they need to basically um a really good backpack or a pretty good backpack um cuz even if you showed up without a hammock or a tarp or a sleep a bug net um we have those down there um i try to design it so that if somebody's luggage doesn't show up we have them covered um except for clothes um so yeah. basically like a very good backpack and a dry bag to put in the backpack for a sleeping bag um, I, I, I really, uh, Kyle, I really looked at it this year from what the indigenous do and they honestly use a fleece blanket, like the Walmart, um, uh, fleece sleeping bags. Okay. And so for people who don't already have like a very, very, very lightweight, um, sleeping bag, like a snug pack jungle bag or something, I'll recommend that. Or I, poncho liner is what I used last time. Yeah, poncho liners are almost made for it. Um, they're incredible. Um, and I have like three of them. Um, but I honestly just use a Coolmax liner from a sleeping bag. And um, I've told people that, and some people have complained that they wake up cold at like four in the morning. Um, I don't, but and I'm, a, I'm not a cold sleeper. So um, it's worked for me, but... Um, uh, just the liners worked for me, but you don't have to, you can spend 14 bucks at Walmart and you'd be good to go. It seemed to me that it could be, if you want to take all your gear and head to toe, everything, you can set that up. Or if they show up with a backpack and three days worth of clothes, you can set them up with everything they need. A hundred percent. Yeah. Including the tarp. Yeah. It's just a matter of how much gear you want to bring. And, and that honestly, it's, it's, this is the world's smallest violins, but that's where it's the hard part being a gear reviewer because like, I mean, I bring like five times more gear than anybody else. I'm supposed to be the expert who's supposed to be able to do it lightweight, but no, I want to test this cool little gizmo and that, this and the other. And I have to bring the satellite, um, you know, pinging device and, and all that stuff too. So like, um, I always end up bringing like way more than everybody else. 
every year, my every trip, my pack gets smaller and smaller. Yeah. Um, just the amount of stuff that I was certain I was going to need shifts. Well, Dan, last year I brought I brought the tachytron with me all the way to the jungle. <laughs> the tachytron is a Samsonite hard case backpack with stickers all over it that looks quite tacky. And someone dared me to bring it. And I was like, well, I need to bring the knives, the uh, slingshot making thing and like uh, a whole drill kit and all this other stuff for all the crafts. So I was like. Let's just bring the tachytron, throw it in the boat, and drag it through the jungle, and I did it. I got a picture. I got a video of me in the dugout canoe with it going across this small lake. Yeah, That's I was awesome. gonna bring my woven pack, but it's being up here. It's dried out a little bit, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure which way it's gonna go. But I think I found this lady that weaves with um, kudzu. Perfect. So I may come down with an Alberto style pack done from kudzu and uh, uh, hickory. Just treat it like crazy because you don't want the um, um, customs guys taking your stuff. Oh, yeah. The, the, you have to say that it's treated so that they don't think bugs are being transported in it. Yeah. That's that's the trick with um, bringing wood products back. For instance, I brought boiled linseed oil in a rum bottle down there treated everything with the boiled linseed oil so that they could bring it back. That's a good idea. Hmm. We actually hadn't had that problem until about two years ago, Dan, but people made their own canoe paddles and uh, uh, made their own blow guns, of course, in their own bows. And the customs guys decided to give us flack for it. Uh, canoe paddles, a big chunk of wood. Yeah. Well, there are many canoe paddles. They're like little tiny ones, but still, oh, okay, it was a big chunk of wood. Very cool. We've talked about uh, machetes and stuff on the for a while. Do uh, you want to talk about some of the what are the, some of the things you'd kind of want to look for in a machete that we might not uh, know about if we haven't used a machete all that much? Yeah, 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 for sure. So, so to give some context on that, um, I I work for uh, my main job, um, quote unquote, is uh, Condor Tool Knife. Um, and I designed for them. I've designed over a hundred and ten designs for for Condor over the past ten years, um, and and I finally had to uh, uh, tally them all up. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to use that as like a quote to tell people because it sounds impressive, but whatever. Um, but uh, Condor Tool and Knife is owned by Imakasa. Condor Tool and Knife is made in El Salvador. Imakasa is. Their parent company in El Salvador, same factory, all that stuff. They're the world's second biggest machete manufacturer. So working for them and doing stuff out in the jungle, I've uh, acquired quite a bit of, of really random knowledge about big knife use and, and machete use. And, and so with, with, with that in mind, um, dealing with a lot of machetes that are out there, there are two types of machetes, There's uh, more or less. There's an Indonesian style, which is like um, this Malaysian Indo-Pacific area where it's made out of spring steel, a car spring steel made out of like one fourth of an inch to even way, way thicker um, knives that are out there. And it has a huge distal taper and a huge spine to edge taper. So they're, they're like very, very like thick and then become very, very narrow. So they're balanced in the hand. And a lot of times... Um, they have a, a rat tail or a stick tang 
um, so that they're really, really blade heavy and, and more balanced. So um, Condor, we couldn't do the, the, the stick tang with feeling confidence, so we skeletonized the handle. But um, so that's the thicker style um, machete uh, or, or go lock or parang. Then you have the Central American, South American style, which is made out of anything from like a 1.5 millimeter um, thick to like, uh, it can be four millimeters thick. So like three sixteenths or what's the 1.5, Dan? Um, is that 330 or is that 330 seconds? Somewhere around there. It's super, super thin. Uh, I've got a cheat sheet for that at the shop. Yeah, yeah. I got Google too, but you get the idea. So super, super thin. And the American machetes, you know, you can talk smack about them all you want, Joe, me. Um, but um, they never have a distal taper. So they're pretty thick. And for some reason, we decided to make really, really thick machetes, such as Ontario, for instance. And um, a lot of times... They stay thick at the handle, and then when you get to the point of the machete, they're still thick. And those are a little bit harder to use all day long than a machete that's properly done with a distal taper. So it's thin near the handle and gets even thinner towards the tip. So honestly, if I wanted to buy a machete that I'm going to be using all day long, whether it be a South American brand like Imacasa or, or Tremontina, or, or um, a Ecuadorian brand like Hansa or, or someone like Promadoka, I think, from the Dominican Republic, um, or even Nicholson and some hardware shops that are made in China but are actually okay steel. I like to look for a very thin machete with the distal taper being from the handle, the tip gets uh, to the tip, it gets thinner. Well, I can keep going into it. Long story short, you go over to like a Lowe's Hardware and you see all these machetes that are bent. Um, that's because some Latin American went and tested them by stepping on them. And if it doesn't bend back and become straight, doesn't have a good, uh, uh, a good um, heat treat. So you want to make sure it uh, uh, flexes but comes back to true. Hmm. So that's way more machete information than you really need to know. But uh, hey. No, that's really cool. And some of the size and thicknesses are environmental where – if you're cutting a lot of succulent vines, you want a, a very thin, light machete. Whereas if you're cutting heavier, woody stuff, that's when you'll get the heavier, you know, the thicker blade, the more massive. Yeah, yeah. Or longer, you know. Yeah. Um, they consider the most common machete size in the U.S. is 18 inches um, all the way to 20 inches. And some surveyors may use 22 inches. Um, and, and you tell that to Alberto, he's like, ha ha ha, do they come in men's sizes? Because he's using like a, a 24 to 28 inch machetes and the 18 inch machetes are tiny to them, but, um, they're, they're a little bit more safer, especially for us who don't use machetes every day because, um, and I'll give Dan a segue to this, but when you have a machete, you have, you know, like a cutting edge that comes all the way from the handle, all the way to the top. And all of that can be a variation where you can cut yourself unless you do what to the edge, Dan. Unless you use what I've come to call a, a Colombian or South American grind. What, what does that mean, Dan? Yeah, Dan, I'm going to let you go, go, <laughs> go on, on this. Explain it in, in detail. So part of... Part of the challenge for me with the big knife, small knife tasks was I never saw a really effective way to do small knife tasks with a big blade. 
because when you are working a small, nice task close to the handle and you've got a 24 inch blade, that's still a lot of steel out there swinging around. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the first things I noticed was Alberto, if he, he didn't like to borrow Americans machetes and he would call them unsafe. And I was trying to wrap my head around that, and it was finally explained that down there, you know, the sweet spot on those machetes, especially especially the cutlass-style machetes, is that last third of the blade. So they only sharpen the last third of the blade because okay. they're so precise, they're so experienced, they've worked with that tool for so long, they'll only cut right there at the, the sweet spot. And when they need to do a small knife task, rather than work close to the handle and have a lot of blades swinging out in space, they'll actually grab the blade close to the tip. And then they'll do small knife tasks with that little, you know, four, six inches of blade that's right there at the tip. And Hmm. that is, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but that region, the Colombia, Brazil, Peru region, that's where you see that that dull, sharp combination on the blade, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, For at least in my experience, because in El Salvador, they sharpen the whole thing yeah. um, for the most part. But that's just depending on where you're at, too, or the person, of course. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you imagine that last, you know, like six inches of the blade near the point being sharpened, you know, before that, they even almost round it off in some instances, or it's so dull, they can just grab it between the digits of their fingers and, and, and choke up on it and use it like just a big old, almost like, like, like pinching an ulu or something. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it that, that well. But um, when you see it that way, and I'm like, well, where do you see the variations where the guys are completely sharpening the whole thing? He's like, well, some people who work with a lot of wood. Yeah, the woodcutters. Yeah, yeah, the woodcutters or the the canoe makers will have the whole the whole blade sharpened because they'll do this, that, or the other. But um, yeah. um like use it as a draw knife and stuff, and yeah. closer to the handle. Yeah, but the problem is, it's like uh, if if you grab a uh, I don't know a hammer with like the a blade that's sharpened on it, you're so not used to having it there that you like you think everybody's just like that, and that's why Alberto thought you know this is unsafe because he just pick it up, and he's like oh. <laughs> You guys with your molecule shaving thick leather belt sanders, you know, are putting these crazy edges on these things. And I'm just picking it up and using it like I've always been. Yeah, if the majority of the blade is sharp and he's got you know, many, many years of muscle memory of just grab the middle of the blade, mm-hmm. then at some point he's going to not be thinking and he'll do what he's always done. And if the whole blade is sharpened, he'll cut his hand. Mm-hmm. Um. And the woodcutters apparently will also use that full length to lay out their cuts to make like scribe lines. Yeah, big time. Um, And that's when they'll want a a whole long cutting surface. Now that's, you know, this isn't the rule, you know, because you'll see completely different changes that like in Panama, they might sharpen the whole thing or or something like that. Or, you know, I'll I'll get a... uh, um, uh, proven who says joe that's not the same in my region in my region we keep it this way so it's not like the rule for everybody down there but it's just like the common thing in the areas where we've seen it's as much of a rule as you can have in the knife industry right yeah 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 or the beekeeping industry you know so who knows the machete the 0.230 uh machete from tops how to get the uh 
why does it have the 0. 0.230 designation on it? Um, because that's how, how long the blade is. Um, there's a 0. 0.180 and then there's a 0. 0.230. I think it's, uh, it's out of the overall length. I think it is, or I should know this. <laughs> one's longer and one's shorter. Um, and it might be, I think the overall length, um, of, of the blade or of the uh, machete itself, um, because, uh, the more common one that we use, uh, the 0. 0.180 is just like a 12 inch, um, blade is a designation. And, and honestly, that was mostly, uh, polo. Um, and, and I just said, Oh, okay. Put a lantern hole here. And, and then, uh, they, they kind of put my, put my name on it, but, um, that was mostly their baby, um, with yeah. it, but you can see it's an American one. And so it's, uh, actually a pretty light machete for, for an American machete. And so they did a pretty good job with that. Now, Berto, the Yukuna guide of ours, has a crazy version of the 230. Man, you should see it now, um, Dan. It is so rusted, it's not even funny. <laughs> there might be like a penny-sized, penny-thickness level of, of metal in between the handles that the rest of the blade of the machete is connected to. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, it's incredible. That is one thing. The jungle is it is the environment is so competitive. I have never seen an environment I don't want to say as destructive, but as hard on materials. Oh dude, dude, it'll delaminate a dry bag with mold, the same mold that eats CDs and splits CDs apart. You know, you, you just can't have nice things down there for a long time. Or if you do, you have to be really careful, which is why I've stopped giving Gorn like really cool stuff. Because <laughs> yeah. I know funny. in like four years, it's just going to be a piece of, of, of detritus. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Dan, I gave him that, that thermal, um, uh, uh, thermal imaging thing that connects to a phone. Yeah. I asked for that back and took it back. I was like, this is just going to be a piece of junk later. And I used it for hunting because I was able to find a dead deer that I hit with your crossbow um, out in the woods before even actually having to look for it. Well, I mean, it's gotten to the point now that there's bacteria that specifically eats circuit boards in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like they have to keep, they have to keep uh, the computers on a lot of the time because they like to keep the heat in there because it keeps the humidity away too. Hmm. And and it, like for instance, if you get like a wooden product from them and it's connected to any piece of steel, like this used to be the case back in the day with Gordon's knives. It's not now, but like they would shrink when they came up to the U.S. because of the ninety nine percent humidity of the wood. Yeah, hmm. yeah. One of my Gordon knives, I just the, the second I got home, I pretty much just submerged it in mineral oil. Yeah. Um, and fortunately, it soaked up the oil and stabilized, and still looks. It was one of the ones with the the stacked nut shells. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That would be one to really separate too. Yeah, and it did great. It got a little bit of like one swelled a little more than the other, but it stabilized with all the oil in it, and it's held cool. great. But the little uh, the shot glasses I carved by the time I was by the time I unpacked them, they had already started to check. Oh man, yeah, I had that for my uh, blowgun mouthpieces. Um. And on the glasses, I just mixed uh, black pigment with epoxy, I filled the cracks, and then sanded it out. And it kind of has a cool look to it now. Oh, neat. 
Uh, my mouthpiece, I think it was Bloodwood, and it has done it's done well. It's still yeah. Bloodwood don't give a doesn't care. No, I mean it took me four extra days to carve it, but it's still in good shape. <laughs> so the Bloodwood down there, uh, I mean you you both are knife makers and are very familiar with Bloodwood, I'm sure. But it just like grows everywhere down there and so i'm hearing like hacking for like two hours axe hacking it's it's dan in the back just wanted to get this like like 10 pound log back home and I'm like, I somehow he got it back home i did and uh i just did a handle on a kephart for joshua from a piece of that wood oh cool um yeah so blood wood is incredibly dense it's denser than oak and its natural oils are very mold and fungus resistant. Yeah. So 100%. So apart from having this beautiful deep red color and if you if you get the right piece it's got great chatoyance like maple or black walnut. Hey, what's chatoyance? Uh chatoyance is that the 3 the 3D look? Yeah, that that inner light, that depth, the shimmering. Yes. Uh so it's just stunning wood that's incredibly dense. It's tightly grained and because the oils in it it doesn't rot. It doesn't mildew. I mean, it's it's just a phenomenal wood, but it's so dense and oily, it's a challenge to work with. And it wrecks, wrecks knives. Oh. If you're trying to baton, baton with that for a tester, Jesus. <laughs> so is that, or I guess, kind of similar to Cocobolo then? or is Yeah, that... it's like Cocobolo, but on crack. Yeah. Okay. I, I used uh, Cocobolo on a couple of my first knives and uh learned that i am a lot more allergic to it than i uh thought i was so no more coco bolo knives for me oh no did you get like the red rashes or something yeah well for me it was uh the dust just being in the air like for days afterwards like i did always made sure to have my respirator and stuff on but uh i was wheezing pretty bad and it it took me like three or four weeks to when I finally finished my last knife that I said, yeah, I'm done. It took me three or four weeks before I was breathing well again. Holy cow. That's incredible. Man, they will mess you up. The, the oils in that, I mean, even if you don't have an allergic reaction, I work now I've got a full face respirator, but I used to have to wear goggles and a respirator because the oils that would aerosolize when I was sanding and cutting it, it was like tear gas. You said Epe? Yeah. Yeah. That that really, really hardwood. Uh, phenomenal for decks. It's uh it's okay for knife handles. It tends to check a little bit because it's so so hard and dense. Yeah, and if there's not really anything going on with it. It's not so, so, like the knife handle is not a super interesting oh, um yeah. wood. It's a very boring wood. It's long straight grain, it's it's nothing fancy. But for decking, I think it's got a, a 50 or 75-year lifespan. Wow. Yeah, that's what my dad made his uh, porch stairs out of. When uh, when we built our house in Georgia, I specced it for the deck. And the guy doing the deck, you know, I tried to tell him, hey, you know, this is a different wood. And, yeah, yeah, I've been building decks. And they couldn't use a nail gun because the nails kept ricocheting. When they tried to use the nail gun, they had to drill and screw every board down. Hmm. Huh, wow. And we, fortunately, they only had to do it on the perimeter because we used that, uh, like a floating biscuit system for the interiors. Um, but yeah, he came back and said, look, I, I should have listened. 
Um, (laughs) I blew through 15 saw blades. I've never gone through that many blades and we couldn't use the nail gun because the nails kept ricocheting. Yeah. (laughs) The, um, you know, Gorn's house is made out of like mahogany or bloodwood or something like that. Yeah. And that's another thing, man. Especially if you, if you know wood to walk into some of the structures there and you look around and, yeah, it, it's mahogany and epe. I mean, easily three quarters of a million dollars worth of lumber is in this guy's back shed. Um, mm. But that's the structural materials. It's available and it's the materials that will withstand in that environment. Yeah, like withstand, withstand, like hurricanes and Ebola, most likely, and God knows what else. The raw material, the raw materials in Gorin's house. I mean, the lumber it would be probably three million dollars worth of lumber in in the states. Holy cow, really? Yeah, I mean, all of that flooring, and that's beautiful flooring. Um, I mean, he's got structural members that are you know, like 12-inch uh, bloodwood pilings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the amount of saw blades they must have gone through to make that are incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, my dog is trying to step on a cookery. Sheila, move your foot. <laughs> uh, that's a tough direction. That's a huge... Uh-oh. I put a chunk in my wood flooring. <laughs> Great. It's only it's only a problem if Ashley notices. Right, she doesn't come up here. It's cool. It's Monday. It's just a Monday <laughs> here. It's oh. only a flesh wound. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, for the wood flooring, that's not going to buff out if we. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I'll send you a picture of this. It's kind of funny. <laughs> A little touch-up stain, a little linseed oil, no one will notice. You'll be fine. Dude, I'm going to need like a brick of wax to do the filling on this. That just happened, too. Good night. Oh, well. Anyway. So, <laughs> speaking of cookeries, a very specific knife design, um, how did you get into the, the design part of the knife industry? Um, being a knife nerd, you know, all my life, and then also – Okay, the 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 kukris do this, that, and the other, but like paying attention to what everybody's talking about and saying, okay, all right, I'm not, I I I, I love a Scandinavian bevel with a four inch blade and a four inch handle and a point down the center line. I can design those, you know, upside down and do all this, that, and the other. But um, I really wanted to break out of my shell and be like, okay, you know what? I want to design a a, a freaking um, Nepalese kukri, not just a kukri-shaped knife, but just a real kukri and, and trying to get all the, which I still, um, you know, uh, lo- love to death, the real Nepalese kukris, but trying to get that all perfect and breaking out of your shell with these rules that that I always made for myself is kind of like part of when I got into designing what I wanted to do. And getting into it, you know, what was popular on the forums? Okay, well, everybody's talking about Golocks. But nobody can get a Golok. Condor should make a Golok. Oh, now it's the bestseller. A funny thing. Yeah, it's 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 just you know. But I guess I, I really like paying attention to what what people are interested in, and and then go why why is that? Well, they want something that can chop heavy heavy wood, and and things along that line. So well, and I assume learning the why and how does it work, and then can I reproduce or change that. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's a good point, you know, Dan. The, the context behind why they would design this. Instead of designing a machete-shaped knife, you know, oh, okay, well, you got to have the, the tapers to make it thin so you can use it all day long instead of a giant, thick piece of junk. 
you know, um, and, and, and the why behind these designs is important. And then, you know, right back into that context, um, Kyle, of what we talked about earlier about like, you know, looking at some of the old literature and saying, oh, well, those guys kind of knew what they were talking about when they took a Nesmuk knife made out of three thirty seconds and were using it, you know, as a, as a, as a knife all day long in their camp, you know, and, and, you know, things along that line. Yeah. What would you say some of your inspirations are when you're designing the different knives? Uh, what influences and things you mentioned, uh, kind of looking at some of, or listening to what other people had to say, are there any other inspirations you were looking at? Yeah. Crocodile Nutty. <laughs> um, watched it too much when I was a kid. I said, I just love big Bowies. So, um, but you know, now apparently and it's not because of that or anything like that, but Bowies are popular. So, the Dundee Bowie uh, uh, look is 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 pretty popular right now. So that's a, a good example. But you know these old Australian than an American knife design. Right, right, right. And uh, <laughs> it's just about to say something like that. It's and and not not to mention I don't think you can even have that big of a knife in Australia out in the bush. Um, I'm not sure about that. Sorry, Australians, you can can yell at me later. I'm not sure. You can't even have zombie knives anymore in uh, Queensland. Oof. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a, that's a whole nother side rant. You know, I have some old pictures of like um, Cubans and, and Indonesian people like from National Geographic style magazines back in the day. Um, and looking at, you know, just like the context of those pictures and, and what they're doing with those and thinking, gosh, okay, what's the story behind this kid? Okay, his name is and he does, you know, this all day long and what how does he feel when he's using it okay it needs to be this big what's he worried about the most well he's not really wearing pants he's wearing a like a cloth around his waist how's he designing that or how is he having that knife attached on oh well he has it on a, a small strap instead of one of these giant belt loops and you know paying attention to all those little details uh uh help, helps with the designs because there's only so many things you can do with a knife before you're reinventing the wheel yeah. You know, well, there's no uh, new knife designs out there. Yeah, ever since someone, someone, something knocked off that first stone flake and started cutting with it, everything that can be done has been pretty much done until the lightsaber is perfected. Right, right, right. You might be able to get an unusual combination of attributes, but it almost got to be a game with Ethan, where I'd say, "Oh, hey, I found, I, I came up with this new idea," and then he would come back 20 minutes later with a book and open up some page and go, you mean like this one exactly here that was done 200 years ago? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's in, especially with Ethan, but yeah, it's incredible. I mean, like you just take a dude, I think I have a, a knife design that is awesome based on my years of experience on uh, the internet or whatever. And, and, um, and, and then they, they put out that knife and you just go into, you take the outline of that knife and you go into Microsoft Paint and you black it out and you're like, oh, uh, without all the bevels and all that, the outside shape. Oh, I've seen that knife before. Oh, okay. When we first started on the Piranha, you know, we were six hours into it. Like, that's perfect. And you said, you know, that looks familiar. I, I think I've seen it somewhere before. Yeah. And then we checked and it was it was nearly identical to somebody else's pattern and we had to start over. Yeah. Well, I mean – that happens in, 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 you know, you, you can say that in the knife industry, 
you know, uh, you know, people are copying other people's designs and all that stuff. But listen, uh, until you patent that that flake, uh, your that that flake, you know, UG did back in the early, you know, not pre Cambrian era, but I can't remember which era. It, it's hard to 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 say that, you know, that you're the original person. You you may not be the original person, but you can't patent a knife design for this industry to to carry on. Designers, makers, buyers have got to have a certain awareness of there's a combination that may be specific or a style that may be specific to someone. And if they've done that, whatever that combination is, give them their due, make your changes. Not to say that they invented that, but that specific set of combinations, don't rip it off. There's plenty of other shapes you can work with. Right, right. And, you know, honestly, too, if you cite where you got the inspiration from, for like some knife makers, that's really, really, you know, perfect. And, you know, just like, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I really like, for instance, the Skookum. You know, I talked about the Pterosaur earlier, you know, there was a nod to the Skookum and the Pterosaur design because I loved the Skookum so much and what Rod Garcia made. Um, and, and, when, and when you reference that stuff, it gives people context you know, about where it came from too. Kind of like the cordage out of uh, plastic bags that Goran was teaching. And he made a, Oh yeah, that got, mm-hmm. but he made a point of saying, I, I learned this from this guy, which doesn't cheapen his knowledge that he's teaching you, but it's the nod to this came from somewhere. What would you say defines your style as a designer, Jeff? Crayons. Crayons. Uh, that's right. Your dad was a Marine. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, would define my style, uh, utilitarian, utilitarian would be my style. You know, I've never, have there have been some, uh, I am just getting to the point where I'd say I design, I'm starting to design something that's very pretty and, 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 um, uh, unique and different and, and, and has, um, uh, uh, different lines going for it a lot of my lines are very basic very basic um and and um also in 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 reference to a lot a lot of the um styles that i like because where i got my ideas from were people who are beating pieces of metal from an old jeep spring you know and and making something that just works out in the jungle where they're using a plastic bag for uh the glue in between the handle and the um blade and and reading books back in the day of a guy able to carve out an alligator with a broken butcher knife, you know, I'm thinking, God, really don't need to overthink the knife. So utilitarian would be the way I would describe my styles. <laughs> we approve. I, I, I hope that was as entertaining as it sounded to me because oh, I once, said I could design a pretty knife. <laughs> once you had, once you had, carve out alligator you had my undivided attention um, yeah I'm, re- I'm referring to uh touch of the everglades t-o-t-c-h and um gosh you'd see it on some of the fronts of his um uh, uh books that he has is what, what are these called autobiographies dude was an illegal moonshiner ran around the everglades poaching alligators and all he had was a broken butcher knife and he lived with it that's pretty hardcore in the 50s so, like, very hardcore. Um, pretty cool. That's probably some uh, fairly uh, high-quality steel on that butcher knife, too. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll look for the picture of it in the, um, uh, uh, Amazon. But um, oh yeah, there it is. It just po- poked up right away. Um, I'll, I'll put that in the link down below so you can see it. But I think he has his. Yeah, there's a, one of the knives in there. That one's not as broken. Hmm. Touch a life in the Everglades. Really neat book. So, and uh, somewhat controversial. Uh, what uh, what's your opinion on the different knife thicknesses? I like thin stuff. The only reason that stuff becomes thick is is just because it's easier for some companies to grind a thicker edge on it. It's unless I am making a log cabin, I haven't really needed a super super thick thick um, cutting device, be it an axe or something like. Not saying anything bad about axes. Um, I love them. I have like fifty, sixty maybe um, axes, but um, you can do a lot of work with a thin knife and have a little bit more finesse for me, especially, you know, seeing what people can do in the culinary area, really using a knife, not just to push cut and split stuff. I mean, splitting, come on guys, this just happened big in the past 20 years of batoning and all this stuff. People cut with knives beforehand, sliced with knives. You know, people don't slice stuff anymore out in the bush, they say, but that's because they just never do anything but cut wood. Yeah, it was very telling when I started studying the frontier knives or trade knives, late 1700s, early 1800s, and a fat French knife was an eighth of an inch. Yeah, 100%, man. It's it's incredible. Uh, you'd, be, you'd be lucky if you found them an eighth of an inch in some cases. Yeah, Sheffields were usually 332, mm-hmm. 116th wasn't uncommon. And these are guys that were literally living and dying off their blades. And they're using them all the time. So it only took them a second to get a micro bevel on that edge. Just like, I mean, you can learn a lot from kitchen knives right now because those guys are using a knife all day long to cut various different types of, of material out there. Be it, you know, yeah, it might all be vegetable or bone or meat or could be something ropey and lean, you know, and, and, they're slicing with it. They're using different types of grips on the knives. They're using all day long. They have to sharpen it. They want a wire edge. They want a polished edge. They want a God knows what. But um, with the 70-30 edge or, or something, but they're using it all day long, and that's kind of like where it goes back to the skill. They're, they're using it all the time. One of the things I liked about studying the culinary industry is, one, like you said, it's a blade culture. They're, they're working with it mm-hmm. 10 hours a day. And the other is it was a little bit of a vacuum for fads. Like the, the latest Rambo movie had no effect on kitchen knife design. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. that it was it they stayed focused on it as a working tool. Uh, so they managed to avoid a lot of the crap that came out from fads. Yeah. One of the things that I was cutting tonight that I always find uh, surprisingly difficult to cut as sweet potatoes uh you end up i end up getting so far into them and then they they just want to crack and kind of unwieldy hard hard uh vegetable that's that's when you really see high thin spines with high grinds cutting rather than tearing apart I'm I'm making sounds because when I uh worked in department of etymology actually before I worked um, full-time as a, a field technician. I worked during the summers for vegetable vegetable pest entomology um, and primarily for the sweet potato weevil. 
I can't eat another sweet potato at all. Um, because <laughs> I'd have so many, you know, like we were playing baseball with them out in the backyard. We'd have so many. Um, and, and, you know, learning how to cut those every single day, I'd have to cut them to look for a different type of uh, uh, weevil damage in things. I mean, I never even thought about it. I just freaking hacked them like crazy with a, with a, a Dexter Russell knife. Um, mm. But uh, So does this mean the new fad for the Rambo stuff is going to be like some kind of recurve thing? Um, oh, that's right, because there's a new Rambo movie, isn't there? Yeah. And karambits are, are really cool right now, so I, that's what I would expect. Hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, that's not my style of knife. <laughs> uh, see, you got, I, I get out of my style and, and try and go for stuff like, man, I'm going to make something that John Rambo could use. Uh, but then again, I probably would end up doing what he did in that last one, that Rambo 4 movie, where he basically made a Golok. Uh, hmm. Oh, look, I made a Fairburn Applegate style and a Bowie knife. Yeah. <laughs> wonder how that could have happened. <laughs> uh, so... So would you say that thin blades have a place in bushcrafting? Yeah. I mean, you don't see any case knives that are thicker than an eighth, right? And they've been using those bushcrafting for before bushcraft is cool. Yeah. My, my I mean, grandfather's more- case knife. You hear that, that the first start of that sentence forever, and you know they whittled some stuff. Yeah. And, I mean, the Mora that kind of was the gold standard for so long was what, 16th, 32nd of an inch? Yep. yep. Well, a little bit thicker than that. Yeah. But yeah, no, right around there. I think it's two millimeters thick. So whatever that is in freedom numbers. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, that's probably three thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. They're and they're you know they're still the gold standard. Um, and it's thin knives. You know, I'm not gonna drink the Kool Aid. Kool Aid. Their their thick knives do have their their place, but thin knives oh. are starting. Come to- on, Joe. It's cherry flavored. You'll like it. <laughs> does it come with a happy meal no um it does <laughs> uh, but like a lot of the knife makers who you would say make thick knives are now starting to do thin knives like tops for instance what's the frog market special that's like a yeah. one thirty seconds or something ridiculously thin when you think of tops you think of ginormous thick um style blades and and Honestly, you know, you're starting to see a lot, or at least I am, with some of these um, um, what I would call newer folding knife manufacturers. I'm starting to see a little bit more distal tapers. Um, so you're yeah. still getting that thin edge. Well, when I went out on my own, several knife makers that I had been working with all sat me down and said, look, we get, we get your whole perspective on thin blades. We understand that the math works. But you're going to go out of business. Nobody buys thin blades. But the math works. I mean, the blades work. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad to see that as people are getting more and more educated, as their skills are developing, they're realizing the benefits of thinner, lighter blades. Well, you know, who's telling you that are the people who are manufacturers that make a lot of knives? You know, like when people are ready to step up from a, a – I'm just using this as a, for instance, to step up from a condor pterosaur to a uh, 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 custom-made dogwood pterosaur. They're probably going to ask for a thin version of it. And um, What did, like, Preston, he was really, like, asking to push it. He was, what, three thirty seconds when he went in his? 
Well, actually, he started with I, – I talked him down to an eighth of an inch, and he really wasn't certain about that. And then I got him down to 330 seconds. And in the end, I had to tell him, let me make it in 330 seconds. I'll send it to you. And if you don't think it's right, I'll make you an eighth-inch blade free. Wow. And I sent him the 330 seconds, and I, I started getting nervous because I didn't hear anything from him for like two weeks. And uh, I finally reached out, and he said, okay, you're right. Um, I probably should have gone one sixteenth of an inch. And he was a very experienced user. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, he can give you his opinion, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he was a very experienced user, and he was shy about going to an eighth of an inch. Um, and at 3.30 seconds, he loved it, and the next knife he ordered was one sixteenth. There you go. I mean – and, and when when they're at your level of, of spending money into a knife, it's because they know what they want. You know, I'm not just well, I'm for Chris. Well, get those two and those are fun. But, you know, like, you know, you're. Well, it, it, typically when you're ready to make a move to a custom blade, you've, your skills have, have developed, your technique has developed. <laughs> Maybe about half the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not all the time, but, I mean, you're. Generally, when you're ready to spend the money on a Ferrari, you've learned to drive a stick shift. Ah, good point. Yes, yes. There's a good take-home message. Um, with all of the changes in metallurgy and steel technology in the last 10, 15 years, what's, what are some of your – what are your go-to knife steels? Oh, God bless it. I knew you were going to ask that. And I'm <laughs> so not into like what, what's happening recently in the knife world with all the steels. You know, like I'm, I'm still talking about AEBL, and now there's S39VN or something. I don't know what. Is there an S40VN now? Uh, there's an S30 and there's an S35VN. Okay, cool. Um, I, think there I, is, I, I think there is a 45 that just came out. Is there? I'm, mm. I blinked, so I probably missed two updates. Right. I mean, I'm still, I still like 440C. <laughs> you know, I'm an old school guy, like 01. Uh, a little bit. I like 1095 and 1075. I like 440C because I can get an edge on it. But I tell you, as far as all the newfangled seals go, LC200. Hmm. That rust proof thing after I dropped a Spyderco ca- uh, Caribbean oh, in the. Right. Uh, yeah, in the, in the Florida Keys, in a canal in the Florida Keys for over a month and then got it back and still can use it every day. That's a pretty cool steel. Yeah. <laughs> So, and Hey, what's, um, that knife that you made me, um, the, the small one with the, the clear kydex sheep, the cub. Um, yeah, that's, uh, S 35 VN. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's pretty interesting steel. It's not, I have no complaints about that. I, I like the edge retention and I like for the thinner blades. I like how tough it is. Yeah, It'll it's deflect. actually worked really, really well for a hunting knife. It'll deflect and come back true, mm-hmm. and you can really lay into it, and it'll keep bending, but it won't break, and then it'll come back true. Which I haven't done that kind of crazy. Well, I mean, I've hit bones with it, but in scan the edge, bones normally don't do so well, and it did fine. Yeah. Um, and that one looks like a scandy edge because the blade is so thin. That's actually a mm-hmm. six degree. Actually, that one's a little less than six degree. That's like a four and a half degree grind on that. But because the blade's so thin, it just doesn't come very far up the blade. So what's the difference between a saber grind and a scanty grind? Um, so a scanty grind is generally 12 and a half degrees 
coming to a full flat grind. There's no secondary bevel. Uh-huh. And there's argument on that 12 and a half degrees, but that's a number that you can feel comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. Um, a saber grind is a little misleading because it is a flat grind and the grind is half the width of the blade and it has a secondary bevel. But part of what makes that misleading is if your blade is one inch high, then your flat bevel comes up to a half inch. But if it's a two inch wide blade, then your grind is going to come up an inch. So even though both of those are saber grinds, the angle of them are going to be distinctly different. So saber grind has a definition can be misleading, hmm. but the, the general definition is flat grind, half the height of the blade with a, a secondary bevel or a micro bevel. It, oh, okay. So there is a micro bevel there. So that's where they would call like a heli knife sometimes could be a saber grind because it has that micro bevel. Okay. And, that makes sense. And as you know, I'm a huge fan of a micro bevel. Yeah. Yeah. But like I, I hear like 15 different definitions of a saber grind. I still haven't had it like completely ironed out for me. The saying that is completely different from a scanning grind. Oh, well, it's a factory scanning grind from everybody but Mora because nobody else says it on robots. You know? <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. And a true scanning grind is great for delicate wood carving. And that's it. Like, yeah. <laughs> in my opinion, it's so delicate that. Yes, you can do other tasks with it, but that doesn't mean it's the best choice for those other tasks. Yeah. Black palm. Get a serrated version of a Scandinavian grind after black palm. So one of the things that uh, on one of the first trips we went to, uh, there was a lot of Scandi grinds. And I had actually started putting a micro bevel on my Scandi grind because it gives the edge a little more stability. And guys were cutting on some black palm, and it was destroying the true Scandi edges, but mine was holding up. And that was one of the aha moments when we were trying to figure out what was going on. And it was just kind of proof that that micro bevel gives you a little more stability at the edge. And the trade-off is it's not it's quite a precise grind, which for wood carving, especially some of the, the fine wood carving, you want that scalpel that scalpel delicate edge but black palm is it's like cutting wire oh yeah we had another well we had a knife down there with a perfect scandinavian grind and it became destroyed within yeah. the first week i mean within the first like few days it's pretty yeah. crazy yeah and then we start to get back to proper tool for the proper job speaking of the proper tool what are some uh knives that you have on you all the time uh, what are some of the the ones that spend the most time in your pocket? Uh, absolutely, your that um, uh, Emerson waved um, Endura, one hundred percent. That thing is on me like peanut butter on jelly. Um, it's with <laughs> me all the time. I have two or three variations of it. One's a custom one by work by uh, Tough Knives. Um, the other one uh, with the Tom Gr- Tom Crine regrind. And then I have a normal one, which is um, almost always on me. That Spyderco Caribbean. Um, and there's a few others. There's um, one I designed by Condor um, called the Krakatilla. That's on my side sometimes. 
And uh, uh, other than that, those are the probably the three or four most common knives as far as folding knives go. As far as um, um, as far as fixed blades, it's um, going to be either the dogwood pterosaur that I have, or um, a uh, the condor pterosaur um, right now, at least this week. Um, with the fixed blade, it can change from week to week. Um, uh, every once in a while, I'll have either a, a Brachimo, something I designed, or um, there'll be weeks where I just say, you know what, I'm going to put a K-Bar Mark II on my side, um, or Mark one, two. It's like the small little version of a of the K-Bar, um, or just something completely random. Just have something different. You know, I don't want to just have the same knife. I'm a knife guy. I'm a knife lover, not just my designs, but other knives too. Hey, are you telling the backstory on where the name Brachimo came from? It means blah, which means like good, cool. You say hi or hello to a, a Matisse Trisman, you say bra or bra or Brachimo, which means good, means hello, means everything's good, means I'm happy. It's a very blankety term. So that's the word Brachimo for the tops, knives, Bushcraft Global Brachimo that's out there. Hmm. That's cool. I'm pushing for a mini Brachimo because I like the Brachimo, but like I want to have like something that goes next to a machete where you don't know it's there. And um, so I'm pushing for a mini Brachimo next year. I've become a fan of about a two and a half inch blade paired yeah. with. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's, that's like right around the sweet spot. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what size handle I want to do. If I want to do a three finger job or if I want to make a, uh, a, a little bit longer, but it's going to be thin, so it can go on a machete sheath. I hope. Yeah, the the three finger the, that I took, I guess I took it down with, when the boys and I went, and I found after about an hour or so of carving, it was really fatiguing. Mm-hmm. That a a fuller four four and a half inch handle was was more comfortable for long term use. Yeah, I'm still going to go with something smaller than that though, because. Four and a half, four inch handle. I might as well just be bringing a full fixed blade. I want a machete's buddy. Well, and if you're if you're cleaning fish, if you're using it for 20, 30 minutes, mm-hmm. I, I love a three finger design. But you know, after about an hour, it was really fatiguing. And I guess the argument is, if you're you cutting something for an hour, you should be using the machete anyway. Yeah, yeah. Just depends. Just like a blowgun knife to make blowguns with, more or yeah. less. Kind of like the condor woodswise. <laughs> it's it's the patch knife for the blowgun industry. It's, it's a freaking patch knife. It's about to say basically a patch knife. That's it. <laughs> What's it like working with the the larger production companies like Condor and Tops versus you know, when you're doing the, the the freelance design or working with small companies? Um, it's like there's a lot of things where you have to give and take. You know, uh, they might want to make it this thickness or or in some cases they just change the thickness without even telling you. And they can do that, um, which sometimes can can uh, uh, anger a knife designer. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, um, it, it's really fun because, you know, you, you have to sometimes you have to design, you know, for that company, that company style. So you see, hey, they can do this. They have this capability. Um, I'm going to design something crazy or, Hey, I need to take it back a little bit notch. Maybe this knife doesn't need 500 different ways to start a fire on it. And so, you know, it's right along that line. Um, 
And and so like you you kind of have to pair the design with the company, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, depending on what that company's style capabilities is. are, yeah, and in their style. But you know, it's really fun because like sometimes when you're working with with like some some good engineers and stuff, you can challenge them. Be like, all right, I have the concept of this. How do we go about making a reality? And then they think about like something completely out of the box, like the condor lock on the uh, Krakatoa um, or, or something like that to make it very, very different. Wow, I never even would have thought about that. And so that's super interesting to me too. And I, and I really enjoy that, the collaboratory aspect of the knife. If you were really a good engineer, you'd figure out a way to make this work. Right, right. <laughs> And, you know, and, and sometimes like working with engineers who, who work at some of these companies um, and stuff, you know, like it's invigorating to know that you've challenged them because they're like get excited about a project all of a sudden. Sometimes they're like, oh, Joe, is this another four inch, four and a half inch handle point down the center line, Scandi bushcraft knife? Great job. Oh, like, man. You- I'm proud of this one. <laughs> you want to sell knives? Because these are the knives that sell. Right, right, saying. right. I mean, we can look at knives. It's like, I don't know why you want me to make a fillet knife when Rapala has been doing it since the early 1900s and it's in every Walmart and it costs 19 bucks. How are you going to compete with yep. that? <laughs> yeah. So one of the one of the questions we like to ask a bunch of people, which I kind of know what your answer is going to be, is if you were, weren't in the knife industry, what would you be doing? Mm, I'd either be teaching martial arts um, or probably playing with dinosaur toys <laughs> and making nice. reviews of it. No, um, you're just working in the, um, entomology and outdoor industry. Um, I, I work for a couple of different, um, uh, camps and, and summer camps for fun, um, during the summer with kids and, and teach a lot of, uh, kids based camps. Um, for instance, right now I work for a company called Blue Ridge Discovery Center, um, which is really cool because like back in the day, I used to have to make up and do all the work for the summer camps myself. But like here with Blue Ridge Discovery Center, I get to come and be one of the uh, uh, instructors, but I don't have to worry about feeding them or, you know, doing this, that and the other. So I can really focus on my skill sets that I can help teach the kids. Um, and that's oh. really, really fun. All of the fun and none of the logistics. Right, right. That I mean, no. that's hard. You know, the logistics and, and trying to get – you have to do the marketing and make sure you get enough kids to pay for this camp and do all that stuff. That was that was tough. Um, but now, man, working for them is really, really cool. By the way, Blue Ridge Discovery Center is a nonprofit uh, center. So if you guys want to donate, blueridgediscoverycenter.org. Cool. And they have cool summer camps for kids, ornithology fly fishing camp, um, a canoe camp for like four days where you're canoe camping down the river, all sorts of fun stuff. I'm still holding out for the, uh, the next time, uh, jungle Joe's, uh, junior warrior training center camp opens up. Yeah. I finally just convinced blue Ridge to let me teach knife skills. And I had to buy like three sets of, of like 12 Kevlar gloves each, just so the kids could, uh, um, <laughs> use them. And that's not just not, not for safety reasons, but it's to convince, you know, like everybody to have a little bit more um, uh, self-confidence with using these knives. I was about to say, if you don't cut yourself, how, do, how are you going to learn? All right. So our, our last question of the show is, where do you think the industry is going? What's the uh, next big? Well, cleavers are big right now. 
I don't know why, but everybody has to have a cleaver. Folding cleavers, whole companies based on folding cleavers all the way to fixed blades. So I think the next big thing is everybody's wearing um, kilts around. Uh, so yep. scan dudes. I think that's going to be the next big thing. Are I you, think that's are you sure you call. didn't listen to the Dylan Fletcher episode? No. Did, was he on here with that? Talking about scan dudes? Yep. Good for you. Yep. <laughs> there you go. Because Dylan and I both like a little uh, a little airflow when we're at the grinder. There you go. Well, now you can feel like traditional. God, yep. You know, I'm working on my condor right now. I was with uh, Mark Hopper, who is a Scotsman and does wear a proper kilt. And yeah, I was showing the one I carry that's not a true skin do, but it's skin do-esque. And made the comment that it's not a real skin do, but that's okay because I'm not a real Scotsman. <laughs> I mean, what are we going to do? Get it out of like 2,000-year-old bogwood? Yeah, that's going to be easy to export. Yeah, well, I just went um, – I'll, I'll send you pictures. Not of you <laughs> uh, in the kilt. I've seen plenty of that. Yeah. yeah. No, the the wasp design that I do. That cool. It works well as skin do as well. So I hear you're sending Joe pictures of your skin do? I am. <laughs> and it's sticky. I need to go pray. <laughs> Alrighty. So, uh, Joe, do you want to tell uh, people how they can get get in touch with you or find you or connect with you more? Sure. Um, BushcraftGlobal.com on Facebook. Instagram is huge right now. I'm starting to use that a lot more. Oh, it's the newest thing. Well, it's the new thing, but it's easy for me because I like pictures rather than reading. On Bushcraft Global on Instagram. Facebook, Bushcraft Global. Sorry, I shook my head again, so that sounded crazy. Um, And also Condor, Tool and Knife. Um, dot com, Facebook, Instagram, all that fun stuff as well. And you said, uh, I believe you gave an email address to contact you about the Bushcast Global sign-up? Bushcraftglobal at gmail.com. Cool. And uh, if you guys want a life-changing trip, I promise you, you're guaranteed to have a good time. You will not come back the same. No, no, you won't. Yeah, sounds awesome. Hopefully I can make it on one someday. I, I th- For all the knife people out there, this will seriously – well, Dan is coming there yeah. for the sixth time now. Um, knife makers down there get a whole new outlook on how to use a knife and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, this this is my sixth trip, and I am certain I will learn something else about use and technique. I mean – Hey, hey, by the way, you should uh, make some sick things for the sick thing class. Okay. Um, for you and your kit, for Alex to make. All right. I can do that. I mean, just like take some of the, the um, things out of your trash bin and just like cut the, cut the handles <laughs> down or something, you know? It, it is a little known secret that I, I actually do some stick tanks. <gasps> Call Congress. <Yeah. laughs> nice. Well, uh, you can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. That's where you'll find all the show notes and uh, everything will be. You can listen to the show right from there. Uh, We'd like you to listen through your favorite podcast apps. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Tuned In Radio. And you can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. We have both have pages there. And if you would leave us a review on uh, any of the podcast apps, that would be great appreciated to try to get us ranked a little bit higher get us found and served to more people look kyle you've tried asking and that hasn't worked 
So we're telling you, stop right now. Go make a comment. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you can get in touch with Dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. He's Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And you can email him, Dan, at dogwoodcustomknives.com. Like you said earlier, if you want a response in instantly, prepared for some spelling errors. But um, you can get in touch with me, Kyle, at Cage Daily Knives and Cage Daily Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And my email addresses are Kyle at Cage Daily Knives and Kyle at knifeperspective.com. Either one works. Uh, you'll you'll probably get it. quite a few spelling mistakes from me too, but no charge. So there you go. <laughs> you double your money back guarantee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, Joe. It's been uh, great having you on. Love listening and learning a little bit more about you and hearing about Bushcraft Global. And definitely uh, was interesting about learning about machetes. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate being on here. We're going to have a uh, another podcast at some point, I think. I'm kind of asking that. Um, Dan, we're just going to tell stories, knifey stories from the bush. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, we might have to do a, do a wrap-up uh, when you guys get back from it. Just kind of yeah. talk about what yeah. what all you learned. We'll bring a uh, voice recorder and do it out there in the in the bush. Yeah, um, get Alex in on that. Get a perspective from a 15-year-old. Yeah. And this will be his second trip. So if you're thinking about whether or not you can handle this trip, just remember my 13-year-old did it. Very cool. All righty, guys. Uh, thanks for listening and hope you have a great night. 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 Well, let's take it to the edge. Because that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about our things now. That's what's expected. It's the night prospective. To make the pledge, let's take it to the edge. All right, three, two, one, go. Hey, guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with my co-host. Seriously? <laughs> really, Joe? What? Are you, are you finished now? During my, you? during my intro? <laughs> can you be spilling quiet for five minutes? Five minutes, man. All right. Or at least mute the mic. <laughs> Or use mm. lube. I mean, just whatever it takes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> use use all those Kleenexes on the. Uh... <laughs> all right, you ready? You ready, Dan? Yep. <laughs> Three, two, one, go.